I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is, what is QAnon? So before we get into the final stretch of the saga of QAnon, the final quarter of the story, I wanted to stop and take one last little breath before we get to that and explore a topic that is kind of the most important part of it to me, which is the idea of what is QAnon? What is its role in society? How should we interact with it? How should we react to it? And what should we do about the movement and the people that are involved with it? And are we behaving correctly and responding to this unprecedented event in the right way? And everybody wants to hear, you know, the the, the last part of the story, getting into 2020, into the pandemic and all the stuff that led up to January 6th. That's the stuff that people want to hear. But to me, this is really the whole reason why I wanted to do this. And so I thought it was important to kind of take a, a, a pause from the story and explore this idea of what is QAnon? All of these questions and these and these labels that get thrown around and the way that people have dealt with and interacted with it in the media and on social media. And yeah, so we're going to we're going to explore that all all of these questions like is QAnon a cult? Are the people involved with it mentally ill? Are they stupid? Should we? tell them that they're in a cult you know what's the right way to inter- to talk with these people online should we talk to them online should we should we try to argue with them should we try to explain things to them these are all things that i feel like nobody has really gotten a good handle on the right way to do it or how it should be done and i think in a lot of ways a lot of the the things that people do on a daily basis to interact with QAnon and conspiracy thought um, can tend to be possibly destructive, counterintuitive, or just plainly toxic. So I really wanted to get to the bottom of these questions, but instead of just you know speaking from my own perspective and my own opinion on things, which I definitely have. I wanted to try to get a little bit more of an objective viewpoint of things and talk to people who, uh, you know, not only have a lot of experience dealing with these things directly, but also are also, you know, sort of uh, experts and authority figures in a variety of different aspects of what QAnon is. So today we are going to talk with six different people who have, you know, varying degrees of expertise in QAnon and conspiracy theory movements and destructive conspiratorial thought and really try to get to the bottom of these questions. And hopefully by the end of it, we kind of come away with a little bit better of an understanding of what QAnon is, why it affects people the way it does, what these people that are being affected by it and, you know, indoctrinated into it are going through, how we should interact with the movement and these people, what we could potentially do to make things better, or at the very least, how we should conduct ourselves to not make them worse. 
So we have Rachel Bernstein, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. In the last few years, she's been working with families to cope with losing a member to QAnon and other destructive conspiracy movements and cults, as well as helping former members of these movements to break out of their conspiratorial mindset. She is on the advisory board for the International Cultic Studies Association and hosts the Indoctrination Podcast, which we'll link in the show notes. I have been doing counseling for 30 years as of this year. My background is in education, and I still use it today for doing talks about a whole variety of issues that are connected to people maintaining their freedom, people not being manipulated, not taken advantage of, not being controlled without their consent. We're also speaking with Joseph Kelly, a cult intervention specialist and thought reform consultant working in the industry for 30 years after himself experiencing being indoctrinated into a cult and escaping. He is a member of the cult mediation group and helps families dealing with losing members to cults or trying to get themselves out of them. And it was at that point that I was introduced to a group called Transcendental Meditation. For many people, it wouldn't have been considered a cultic relationship or group, but for me, it very much was. So that was the beginnings. And it was at that time that I decided to litigate and sue the Transcendental Meditative Movement for fraud and negligence. And it was then that I began to hear this this body of information about the nature of influence techniques. There's also James A. Beverly, Associate Director of the Institute for the Study of American Religion in Woodway, Texas, and Research Professor at Tyndale University in Toronto, Canada. He has specialized for over 40 years in the study of world and new religions, philosophy and religion, Christian theology and philosophy, and is the author and editor of 16 books, including the QAnon Deception and the QAnon Resource Guide, both of which have been immeasurably helpful and useful in the research for this series. Well, I'm a Canadian uh, scholar. I've studied religion topics mainly for over 40 years. And then about five years ago, I got interested in Donald Trump. And then uh, that led into uh, studying QAnon um, and then writing one of the first books on it. Uh, One of the first books in terms of an outside analysis. We're also talking to Mike Rothschild, a journalist, researcher, and debunker of conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs. He's a contributing writer to The Daily Dot and many other sites, including his own blog. His work in debunking conspiracies has been cited in articles or interviews by The New York Times, Snopes, NBC News, Vice, Right Wing Watch, Christian Science Monitor, PolitiFact, Huffington Post, The Week, CNN, and many others. I've always been interested in conspiracy theories. And I was like, oh, people are looking for stuff about this. People are people are looking for answers. People, people need to know the truth about these things. And I, I started really looking into QAnon in about, probably about January 2018. And I started to get really concerned about the potential for violence in that movement. And as it turns out, I was right to be concerned because it's an extremely violent movement. We're talking to Will Summer, a previous guest of this QAnon series, a politics reporter for the Daily Beast and co-host of the podcast Fever Dreams. I first noticed QAnon happening in maybe the winter of 2017. So a couple months after it began. And I was just like, this is crazy. Uh, But surely it will never get crazier than this. (laughs) You know, and obviously that was not the case. And finally, Travis View another previous guest on the QAnon series, who is a QAnon critic, a Twitter commentator, host of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, which we'll link in the show notes, and contributing writer to the Washington Post and other sites. He is also one of the people who's been covering the QAnon movement.
development from a critical standpoint since basically the beginning. If the tooth back in 2018, if I were to say, oh, there's going to be QAnon promoters, people who sincerely, at least at one point, uh, believed in QAnon being elected to Congress, you know, I, I would have been called like, you know, hysterical. I would have, if someone said that to me, I thought it was like, okay, that's ludicrous. It's not going to get that bad that quickly. So the first thing I want to talk about with the guests is, is QAnon a grift? There's a lot of debate about this in terms of, um, as we've kind of mentioned on, on a previous episode, that there's ostensibly not any direct money or or kind of monetary monetary gain um, being had by the people who are behind QAnon. There are definitely these influencers that are making a lot of money off of QAnon or have in the past selling merchandise and books and classes and things like that. But the specific people themselves that run Q, um, at least on the surface, don't seem to actually want anything out of it in terms of money or any kind of material gain. Um, you know, obviously, we've, with a lot of the stuff we've talked about uh, on previous episodes of like who Q could pot- potentially be, there could be some indirect grift going on in terms of money making if one of these influencers is potentially behind Q. But, you know, to take it at face value and say that Q is a group of people and then all of these influencers are separate people. Um, there's no direct monetary gain going on um, by Q. So, you know, is Q a grift? And why do people buy into this? Why do people believe the lies? Why do they let themselves be scammed by this misinformation campaign? And sort of what is the what is the relationship between Q in terms of what they want out of their audience and why does their audience resonate so majorly with this thing? It reminds me of um, this <laughs> this study that was done humorously that says uh, tomatoes kill people, and um, it's because most people in in their lives have had a tomato in one form or another, ketchup or <laughs> tomato sauce or a tomato uh, and uh, and people die, but eventually. So I think that there is this sense that first people get con- caught up. They can do as, exactly as you said, that they will go to the opposite source of the one that they have decided not to trust. And they will uh, they will go to the person who they think or the news source they think is now the truth because it's the opposite, not necessarily because it's the truth. And so uh, or because it's against the the kind of truth tellers. And so that's when you have this Orwellian kind of world that we're living in now, I believe, where the fact checkers and the truth tellers are the evil ones, the the ones who are uh, part of the system uh, are the ones who can't be trusted, but you're oh, sorry, right? turn that off. The, the ones who are then part of something that you feel like you found on your own in this kind of renegade way uh, are the ones that you can trust. They're the ones who really care. I think it also gives people this sense of power um, because there's so much about what's happening in the world and that has been happening over the last number of years that's made people feel powerless, that's made people feel deceived. So they will go to whomever they think are trusted sources. And usually it's the people who are equally distrustful that are the trustful sources. So, right, there isn't a lot of um, good analysis of the sources of information because there is kind of addictive quality to all of this. People get 
caught up. It's like they need their next fix, similar to a drug where you don't think, you know, how is this going to play out in my life? And is this going to help my work and my relationships? Or is it just going to feel really good and really exciting right now to get it, to get the answer right now? And that's so much of what people are going for to get their fix, I think, because I think it's a very energized world that we're living in in terms of reactivity. And so whatever helps you maintain that level of reactivity, you think is somehow the truth and is right. Um, But it is this informational echo chamber. And and then people don't do um, comparative analysis because really it's not fun. I mean, the, the QAnon theories and other conspiratorial theories are like modern mythology. I mean, you know, would you rather read the New York Times or something about Zeus? I mean, it's much more exciting, you know? But yeah, well, I was I was curious the significance of focusing on comparing QAnon to previous uh, financial scams and mini cults. What do you think the significance is of looking at QAnon and then kind of cross-referencing it and comparing it to some of these older things that you that you cover in your book, like the Dinars and uh, Nasara? Yeah, and I, I really wanted to focus on those because they're not quite as well known as some of the other component parts of QAnon, things like the Satanic Panic or Pizzagate, um, you know, the Blood Libel, things like that. Those are, those are things that a lot of people in this world really know about. But I've had a lot of people, even who, who work in journalism, you know, cover these things, say that, you know, they really didn't know anything about Nasara or they didn't know anything about the Dinar. So I wanted to highlight these, these more obscure scams that don't, you know, they're not really, they're not mentioned in QAnon, like they're not part of that whole universe, but they work the same way. They work with a, a guru who has, you know, special access to secret knowledge and they're doling it out because they, they want people to, to wake up to this thing that's about to happen. And of course you can send them money to keep their, keep their information flowing or you can get in on whatever investment they're selling. And with with QAnon, whoever was doing this really learned from this. And I, you know, I don't know if they knew what these things were, but I would be shocked if they didn't. They learned that if you are promising a return on an investment and you are and you have links to selling that investment, you're committing fraud. You are breaking the law, and the FBI or whoever is going to get you. You know, that's how these other things fell apart. The, you know, the Omega scam fell apart when 18 people got indicted. Um, the Dinar scam has seen a dozen indictments, massive busts, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. QAnon is different in that there's nothing inherently illegal about posting crap on a message board. And there shouldn't be, you know, there's, there is no, there's no law that you're breaking with that. Q doesn't really incite people directly to violence. Q never says, hey, this guy, go out and kill this guy. There's a lot of kind of mob speak in it, but that's not necessarily illegal. It's unethical, it's immoral, but, you know, you're not going to get the FBI knocking on your door because you're posting, you know, cryptic riddles that don't involve anything actually happening. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and the interesting thing I, I about that reading, uh, and I, I the, the the reason why I think that that element of it is like really important um, to be a like a companion piece in the book, uh, you know, before you get into talking about QAnon full full on is I think it's I think it's really fascinating and interesting to show people because um, you look back at you look back at these old schemes that are like these are things from the 90s and the 80s and things like that. And I think a lot of people think of because people are being introduced to the idea of these like conspiracy theories and these like um, the these uh, these sort of grifter empires where people sell uh, sell um 
influence and uh, and ideas to people through these like weird pyramid schemes. They, they they I feel like a lot of people think of them as like new things because they're just now hearing about them. Like most people, QAnon is like the first real like conspiracy theory movement that they've heard of. And I think some people kind of maybe think about them as like this new thing that's just come up out of nowhere. Like our world is going to hell. Everything's getting worse. And maybe maybe there's that's true to a certain degree. But it's really interesting to read those things as a primer and be like, oh, like these things are very similar to QAnon. And they've been they've been happening for decades. So this is not a new thing. This is uh, this is like an optimization of something that's been happening for a long lineage. Yeah. Yeah. It demystifies QAnon. It, it, It takes the kind of the sheen off it. It makes you feel less like, oh, my God, what is going on now? Social media is ruining everything. These things existed before social media ever existed. You know, they, they operated with uh, faxes. They, they operated on, you know, Usenet groups and bulletin board systems. You know, technology makes these things more accessible, easier to find, easier to participate in, you know, less work to be involved in them. But they're not, they're not new. And I think that's really what was important to me was like just stripping back the the new skin on Q and showing the engine and the engine is is very old and and quite rickety sometimes there, there's sort of like there's a, there's a few different levels of it where you have the the true believers the sort of bottom of the pyramid who are the people who have genuinely bought into it because of some of the things that you were just describing they 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 there was one aspect of it that they really centered in on is like this really resonates with me but then there, you know, there's almost like there's the layer above them, which is these people who are almost engaging in it very disingenuously, where they may believe it to some extent, they may believe the emotional aspects of it, but they ultimately know that these things aren't literally true, but that they are building these sort of uh, grifts or these empires of of merchandising and selling, you know, selling merch and selling uh, ready to eat meals. <laughs> You know, for the end times, um, you know, there is that that piece of it that that we they share with the cult, and that is the idea that there is an end time coming for many of the members, it, unless you know uh, uh, Donald Trump is put back in the White House. That the you know the the connection between him using this to his advantage um, for I think many of the people who are on the right who see the political um, gulf as being essential to their establishment and growth in the political sphere. While they may not, they cynically do not believe in the assertions of Q, they do see that this is effective at, at gelling a group together and maintaining a connection where they otherwise wouldn't have the ideology or the uh, charisma themselves to keep those people connected into a force. So they can use Q, and yet they may not themselves be true believers, but the, their followers, the members who are voting for them, are true believers in Q. So you have both things going on. You have, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then you have, you know, uh, just somebody who's not willing to say, well, some of, like Trump, well, they're against pedophiles. You know, it's like he throws that out. Well, who isn't? You know, it's like, you know, everyone's against child being abused at least everyone that I know who's a decent human being. So Q came up with nothing unique there. It's who's the, the perpetrator of this organized crime and, and being a part of the in-group. During pandemic, you were, you know, 
you had you were staying in, you were focused on yourself and what was going on behind the screen. You didn't need to know who they were personally and shake their hand in order to trust them. You began to trust those people who were giving you comfort in a time of discomfort in our nation. So there's a lot there's a lot that was going on there and and it allowed people to pick up a lot of these ideas, I think, and hold on to them. So fragments, some people, you know, were able to shake it off and walk away when Trump was not elected. Um, there's those groups that are part of the big steel community, the big lie community, uh, you know, and, and that whole issue. Um, they have strands of the belief. There's those who see themselves as true patriots uh, rising up against uh, fake news and the mainstream media. And so there's there's so many different contingents within the, the, the Q umbrella. And it, it's fascinating to see how it's it's taken you know so many individuals by by storm you know but to bar the the phrase the storm is coming i believe is what what they say um or it's here you know you've talked in the past about how the reason why you started sort of following this whole thing and why you sort of started engaging with the QAnon people is because you just became uh you just got you just got mad that these people were just spreading these blatant lies and that there was like nobody sort of like paying attention or caring about it. And you felt like it was kind of just like festering underneath a rock somewhere. Um, so, so that all being said, you know, uh, this thing has been going on for like, you know, three or four years now since 2017. And you've been you've been following it for a long time. Uh, you know, how in that time from then till now, how has your thinking and approach towards QAnon and the followers, uh, you know, changed and shifted over the years? What I think the I suppose the the big change was that I lost a lot of hope that uh, this kind of phenomenon would be sort of uh, stymied by the powers that be. Because my fantasy when I was first sort of researching it in 2018 was that was that uh, people with actual a great deal of influence, like politicians, like people who own social media companies, like psychologists, like academics, people who could actually perhaps um, have an influence over the bizarre beliefs that are that are, that were festering online would you know take action uh, this might involve i don't know perhaps republican party leadership making it clear that they didn't want any part of uh, qAnon in their caucus or that might involve uh, uh uh tech companies early on realizing that qAnon was more than just one of the many conspiracy theories that people spread it was a extremist movement that was radicalizing people was hurting people one of the earliest one of the sort of the first glimmers of hope i got was uh, was when reddit they banned uh, uh, the Great Awakening subreddit and also all other QAnon subreddits all the way back in September of 2018. I thought, okay, now finally, like the powers that be, the people who can influence this thing are taking action. What I kind of realized is that is that actually the I guess the people who had that kind of influence weren't really that interested. And like Twitter, for example, and Facebook, they didn't really take serious action about uh, QAnon growing on their platforms until after January 6th. And, um, you know, the Republican Party, um, they push back a little bit on QAnon. Uh, for example, minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, he said, um, he said once, like, there is no room for QAnon in the GOP. He later, he later, however, claimed that he had no idea what QAnon is. And of course, we now we have, um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a QAnon 
promoting member of Congress. At least at one point, she was promoting QAnon, which was absolutely unthinkable in 2018. Each individual who's coming in connection with the ideas of Q and QAnon comes at it from a little bit of a different point of view in that there, if there are a million followers of the Q philosophy, there are a, mil, a million different QAnons. So you're, you're experiencing, you know, what is it that, that impacts you? The, the idea of the pedophiles, um, the Democrats being, you know, secret members of a pedophile ring that uh, grabs children um, and even, you know, eats them, um, drinks their blood, um, which harkens back to a trope that goes back to the late 1700s having to do with the the uh, the Jews and the protocols of the elders of Zion, which you know, the blood Bible and dipping the matzah into the blood of Christian children. Well, they haven't gone there because, uh, you know, we have mixed cultures that are approaching Q, yet the template is, is pretty much the same. And we see these templates repeating themselves over and over again. Uh, you know, weekly or monthly in, in the QAnon world, uh, the latest um, baker, you know, they call them bakers, uh, the folks who are taking the crumbs of Q and forming them into digestible bread for the masses. So this is like the the middle management who some of them are making great money because they have so many, they've drawn so many followers to their their YouTube and, and uh, various websites and they're selling products. They're selling merch. They're selling supplements. You know, so it's become a business for many of them. And I think even if they did want to back out because they know what they what they're spouting is not true, this is their means of income now. They're dependent upon it. So for certain individuals, um, I think it's a it's a financial situation that they stay they stay with with the the ideas of Q. One thing I tell people is that uh, most of us have to depend on authorities for what we believe, and we don't really absolutely know item X, Y, or Z. For example, I've read I've read more than most people alive about the November third election, but I would I wouldn't go in print to say what I. I absolutely know to be true. I mean, when somebody tells me that the um, the, the uh, images from the computer will show election fraud, I hardly know what that means. What do I know about pocket captures? You know, I've got pockets in my pants, but I didn't know my computer had. Them. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's really kind of the that's really the crux of it, or the heart of it is like it's you know any any human being, especially in our modern age, where. With the abundance of information that we're exposed to in these just, you know, fast drips all around us at all times, it would be physically impossible for you to become an expert on every single thing that you kind of need to believe or trust. You know, it just it would it'd be physically impossible. So, you know, by by the very nature of society, especially now we kind of have to trust in authority figures that, and kind of take their word for it that certain things are real or true or not. There are certain things that we will, you know, by the very nature of our own particular interests and areas of focus, we will become more, have more expertise at and do more digging and not the like fake do your research digging, but like real research and real, you know, investigative discovery. Um, but for a lot of things like why the sky is blue, like 
I'm not going to become a an expert on light refraction just to believe that the sky is blue because of the reasons that they say. I'm just going to kind of believe the people that are experts. And the real sort of problem here, I think, is the the way that people have eroded the concept of trust in authority figures, where it's not about whether or not things are true or not. It's about attacking the concept of trusting experts on things and under undermining the entire concept of believing somebody at face value because of the training that they've gone through and the experience that they've had. Well, you know, anytime something becomes controversial, things then can't get decided by appealing to authority because the other side don't believe it. The great example of that is the debate now about whether you should get vaccinated. So it's divided into two camps and uh, people go with their different authorities. Uh, and the same in QAnon. Uh, the Q teachers uh, would lead anybody to suspect uh, mainstream government, mainstream science. So that's what makes uh, American society right now so tense and so divided. you got competing worlds about absolutely huge realities, like who is the president of the United States, or should you get the vaccine? So... Uh, Things are a mess, and uh, I don't think there's an easy way out. Um, I, I think part of the problem is both both camps on any issue, if there's two camps, they dig in and they don't want to admit anything that gives the other side credence. So, you know, Biden is pictured in such a nasty way in the QAnon world or in the Republican world. And uh, we all know how Donald Trump was pictured by big tech, the mainstream media, um, not to mention the Democrats. The next thing I want to talk about with the guest is the question of, is QAnon a religion? Um, if you see discourse going on online about QAnon, You'll frequently see people referring to it as a religion um, where Donald Trump is essentially the God or the, you know, the, the deity of the religion. And a lot of people will say how, you know, in 20 years from now, QAnon will just be another one of the religions alongside Christianity, Mormonism, Scientology, so on and so forth. Um, so I really wanted to pick that apart and talk to some people, you know, who have expertise in this, including James Beverly, who's spent 40 years studying religion and really asks, really asks the question, does, is QAnon, does QAnon have the, the component parts of being a religion? And is there a potential for it to sort of shift over time into just becoming another mainstream religion? Looking at what QAnon is and what it's been able to do. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, if we could just, if we could actually like coordinate with people and, and, you know, find a level playing field people on a, on a, on a larger scale for like a much more positive, constructive, um, topic or issue, I like, I almost feel like there, I almost feel like that would be a good thing because like you were just saying, like there, there are a lot of anti-Semitic tropes, uh, you know, within QAnon. And a lot of times those things are sort of like not necessarily focused on. They're not specific. They've, they've like edged away some of the, they've scraped away some of the edges and they've left them a little bit more like this isn't specifically anti-Semitic, but it's got like the generic tropes of it. But then like there are pockets of QAnon where they lean hev more heavily into the anti-Semitic tropes and they really do like mention them and talk about the protocols and stuff. But then there's other, you know, Q members that are Jewish 
and and like they, they they like coexist in this weird way where they almost like it's not that they're being hidden from one another in some cases they are but um like you know there are people who talk in like more the more dark pockets of the internet that other like more mainstream QAnon believers just don't even know about but there are some QAnon believers that do know about that stuff and i guess they're just like will they're like they're like willing to like look past it spending disbelief just like uh people would who were uh, you know embracing um, you know, and this this may get me in a little bit of trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. Embracing Mormonism at its outset, when it began with Joseph Smith, and you know, looking into uh, being a seer, and there was a you know seer stone in a hat that he used to predict the future, and uh, eventually that led to him finding the tablets that really have never been verified as architecturally accurate documents of any kind, or the tablets don't exist, or they do, they, that, the, that they have them in Salt Lake City, that they don't have them. Um, that That's not important anyway. His testimony uh, following those situations are more important. So it, it's, it's kind of, you can look at the development of new religions, and some are benign, who've out, grown out of bizarre beliefs, and others are destructive. So when we look at some of the QAnon ideas, you know, one of them I read about was that there's a reptilian race that's coming uh, from the border south of us. And they're sneaking into the country and they've already mated with, with humans. And th so the reptilian race, uh, who are really more interested in undermining our uh, democracy, our constitution, and the government, um, had been sneaking in and, and mating with, with, uh, with humans for many, many years. And this is an old, old uh, uh, conspiracy theory that goes way back. Um, David Icke. And so David Icke has become current again. Some of his ideas have been absorbed into the Q world and uh, it gives new birth to that which is already unproven. The thing that, the thing that I've been kind of mulling over this whole time is like, I got raised in a very Christian conservative environment and the kind of dogmatic call to arms was that something that was deemed as unjust or unchristian or whatever was of the world in air quotes. And I see that same mentality in a lot of QAnon believers where it's kind of like we have our little fiefdom and then it's us and it's just very basic, you know, ones and zeros, us versus them mentality. But the religious dogma just filters down everywhere. That idea of the of the world in that there is a the rest of everyone is wrong and we the sacred flock have the answer. And even the things that don't make sense to us are a part of that greater plan, like the, the idea of blind faith, um, where it's hardwired into the religion that it's not going to make sense. So when you do come up against things like children with leukemia, uh, it's like, well, it's all part of the plan. It's like, it's so one-to-one -one how religion and, and you know, these, what, what I experienced, I'm not saying all religions are this way, although low-key all religions are this way. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, what I experienced was very dogmatic and very pressurized. What is that meme on TikTok? For legal reasons, this is a joke or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, and you know, I mean, you can take it a step further. I mean, Q, religion has a massive role in QAnon, and I and I think it's it's often under discussed. I mean, when I go to these events, I mean, people are quoting the Q drops interspersed with scripture. Uh, they are, I mean, like, it, it, and often, I mean, it, it appears to appeal, particularly in, in the case of like Christian sects that really that really go for like a visceral feel of religion. Um, Pentecostals are often very big into QAnon. This idea that like the devil is a real guy and he is like 
out there and there's a war that's on and like you have been conscripted into this war. Uh, and so, I mean, and, and that really fits really right in with that. I mean, you know, there's like a QAnon church out there uh, that really just gets right into it. So, I mean, re- really like religion and particularly like evangelical Christianity has a massive role. Yeah. I mean, it really like uh, it, it really just plays a huge role in QAnon that these guys, I mean, they think that, I mean, it's like obviously the most important thing you can do if, if you know, is fighting the devil. And they think that their belief in QAnon is playing into that. There's a lot of discussion about QAnon and, um, you know, a lot of it has various weights of legitimacy some of it is a little bit off base some of it maybe even a little bit toxic and not um really the right way of approaching or thinking about it and some of those concepts are things like oh QAnon is a cult QAnon is um you know is a terrorist faction so all these different things that have been talked about and and what I what I have wanted to do with some of these interviews and and some of the research I've done is try to get a more balanced and objective viewpoint on how accurate some of these things are or what what percentage of these things are true or possible. And one of those things which I would be interested in talking to you about is this idea that QAnon is a religion or has the potential to become a religion um, that's a that's a thing that you that people say a lot is like, you know, QAnon is just, you know, Mormonism in, in its early stages or whatever, whatever things you hear people saying on Twitter or whatever. Um, so I guess my my, my first question is, um, you know, in, in the QAnon deception, you you spend uh, you know a good deal of the of the book early on talking about the origins of QAnon. Um, so, you know, in your in your studies and in your expertise, do you see any similarities between the early formation of QAnon and the early formate formation of religion, whether it's a specific religion or just religion in general. Uh, all things being equal, I wouldn't call QAnon a religion. Uh, I would say more it's a political ideology, uh, not so much a religion. Now it has it has a flavor of religion to it, like the devotion to Q, the uh, view that the Q the Q material is almost like a Bible. You know, you go study all the Q drops, um, but but that can be overstated. It's it's largely a political movement that's radically pro-Trump. If if you wanted to use the word uh, cult about it, I I would only think that applies if you want to talk about Trump is a cult leader and he has a cult following. But again, you don't mean religion there because Trump professes to be a Christian, but his his motif, his modus operandi is political and social, not religious. So I I don't think the religion angle with QAnon is that helpful. Uh, What people usually mean by cult is a small group that's really wacky. You know, that's how we use the word. A group has to be really strange, at least to outsiders. And and then we use the cult word. So uh, that's useful to some degree, but I think it's better to view it as a a radical, pro-Trump, pro-Republican political ideology that has some of the trappings of a religion like the veneration of Trump. But, you know, in all my talking to people over five years about Trump, I've only met one person who didn't recognize that he had major faults. Uh, I was on a radio show once with the, with the host and the I said, we all know that Trump has his failings, and this radio host said she didn't think he had any. Well, that's not what the vast majority of people realize. It, well, in fact, I just read Cliff Sims' book, 
team of vipers about his 500 days working for Trump. One thing I liked about the book is he he was an equal opportunity guy. He criticized Trump where it was relevant and true, and he praised him where it was, where he deserved it. And he did the same thing with media or with uh, Republican and, and Democrat leaders. So I don't I don't want to go the religion angle that much, um, unless you include uh, QAnon as part of the Trump cult. One of my friends, Steve Hassan, he wrote a book called The Cult of Trump, where he argued that, uh, well, the obvious Trump is a cult leader and his followers are culty. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of you kind of hit the nail on kind of the head that I was expecting you to Um because that's really, you know, in I mean, I I want I want to investigate it and talk to people and get their perceptions and their perspectives. I don't want to load the uh, load the conversation too much, but in my time researching this, that's basically what I've kind of hit upon is that a lot of these ways that we refer to it are not necessarily helpful. They they can you know they can come from very emotional places of like getting in a fight with somebody on the internet that's into QAnon and calling them a cult member or you know saying that. QAnon is just a new religion where Trump is God or whatever, but that these are they're they're not from a from an, an analytical standpoint they're not accurate and they're not necessarily the the most constructive way forward in dealing with QAnon. Right. Well, calling people names uh, doesn't usually help uh, reconciliation or settle issues. So do you do you think that given time and maybe some like contextual removal from the creation of it? that it could turn into a religion? That's a great question. Um, I definitely think it, it could sort of be, a, I don't know, like an expansion pack onto evangelical Christianity. Yeah, so you can you can play Star Fox 64. Yeah, exactly. It's the DLC. I mean, it's the, um, you, you know, you, you hear from these pastors who, even very conservative ones, who say that it's just sort of like infiltrated, like they call it a heresy, in that just suddenly people will be saying, you know, mentioning... Uh, underground military bases like in QAnon or or these uh, pedophile cabals and stuff and they're like what why is this how is this in my church now and so I think in that way it's kind of been tacked on to onto what we'd recognize as religion what do you think draws people to QAnon so so strongly uh, that they'll give up relationships with family members they'll lose their jobs they'll become isolated they'll have no friends or family what what what, dra- what draws people to it so so strongly. I, I wish I had one one answer for you. And I think it is, again, getting back to that individual that, you know, there there a, a lot of the people who have been exposed to these ideas had tendencies toward um, extremist thought or or um, something was stimulated in them that might have been dormant. And yet it gave it gave a an opportunity to realize those goals. Um, or those feelings, or those feelings of alienation. I mean, in that sense, the people who we've been talking to, there have been letdowns in their life in some way. Some have had uh, trouble with 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 government agencies um, reviewing their books um, and found them to be, you know, questionable. Um, some have been, um, you know. We're we're out in California and began to be sick of the of the woke culture. It it may, you know, they they were they were center um, uh, left and they became right 
uh, as a result of their response to the woke culture. Now, you know, that reactionary position, it's not anyone's fault that people don't just become, you know, lose their job and begin to smoke pot all the time and get involved with Q um, because somebody says something woke, that they're not woke enough. You know, that's not, a, there's no excuse in that. But some people, that's been their reason. So it's so individual. And, you know, there's, there's um, a housewife who's become, you know, absorbed in the ideas and, and uh, a woman who uh, was for the last 40 years, a, a doctor, a medical doctor, who's now anti-vax and embracing Q ideologies. So how does that happen? And why does it happen? And how long will it last? To some extent, it'll last as long as it's useful. And when it's no longer useful, people can tend to fall away from it. But the the ability of a family to stay, even if only peripherally connected to that individual, while they're going through this, in many ways, psychological crisis in relationship to the ideas. It's just that this is the convenient methodology for them to, to go through crisis. And, you know, there, there were some people that have had previous histories with depression and manic depression and, you know, um, substance abuse and and so it, it, it's so different person to person, how they get involved, why they stay involved and how deeply they, they get involved. So and so there's there's no easy answer there as far as looking at solutions, you know, broadly for the people who are attracted to these ideologies. And I think it's, you know, the the, the whole nature of social media um, everybody's kind of, you know, it's become everybody's bad boy. <laughs> you know, do you limit it? Do you, um, you know, how responsible are they? You know, well, well, what about, you know, freedom of association and freedom, freedom of ideology? What part does that play in, in you know, limiting people's ability to hear bullshit on the, on the web? You know, so these are all the questions that come up and they're not, they're very complicated questions with no simple solutions. The cults present simple solutions. Um, here it is, you know, lay it out. It's all those pedophiles over there. Stay away from the Democratic Party because if you, you they're not pedophiles, they're supporting pedophiles tacitly by um, raising money for their campaign or wearing a campaign button for that particular individual who's promoting these ideologies. And, you know, they connect Epstein, abortion, you know, um, uh, Q, uh, Q drops, crumbs, it, it all gets swept up into that, that same wave of thinking. And the next thing to discuss with the guest is really the big question, the, the most important question of this entire topic, um, which is, is QAnon a cult? And the reason why I think this is so important is because, number one, I just think that's an important thing to, to, to discuss whether or not it is a cult or not. Um, but also, it seems to be the main thing that is used in the discourse and the discussion about QAnon um, and a lot of things in general. I, I think in in modern discourse on social media primarily, we have taken to this sort of dynamic where if you d disagree with somebody, the, the thing that we tend to say to people is that they're in a cult, 
we've pathologized opinions to this point where we now um, other people who don't agree with us in some major way as being in a cult. And, you know, both people from all political spectrums do this. Um, you, you, you see it from conservatives a lot. You see it from, from liberals a lot. And, you, you know, you even see it from sort of the more like far left progressives um, calling people of another ideological spectrum in a cult or having been radicalized or having, you know, being unhinged in some way. Um, there's this general speculation about the mental health of people if they um, are in some kind of in-group that you're not in. Um, so, you know, it's this kind of general thing, but very specifically with QAnon um, in, in particular, QAnon critical people and people who follow the QAnon movement from a critical perspective um, tend to engage with QAnon followers in this way where they will mock them and say that they're in a cult. And so, you know, the, the big question here is, is QAnon a cult? Is that an accurate assessment of what QAnon is? And what does it mean for us to engage in discourse with them in that way? Is it helping? Is it hurting? Um, what is the efficacy of going around accusing people of being in a cult in um, removing them from that belief system? There, another focus in your book uh, is kind of um, tackling the cult question of like, is it a cult? Is it not a cult? What does it even mean to call it a cult? And you know, I, I think uh, before you even get into the question of is QAnon a cult, I think that a lot of people can recognize that like in the greater sort of social media discourse, words like cult kind of like lose their meaning over time because people just like throw them out as just like they just they just say them in any in any situation and then they slowly become lose their power. And then it just becomes you saying like, oh, I just I, you say somebody you say somebody's in a cult whenever you're just saying like, oh, you're what you're saying is crazy or whatever. It just loses its meaning. Right. So, or you're really devoted to something. You know, you hear about like the cult of, of Apple and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I mean, in, in, in researching for your book and, and, you know, what you were able to put together and the people that you were able to talk to, you know, where, where did you, where did you kind of land on that in, in terms of like, number one, whether or not it's fair to classify QAnon as a cult or potentially a cult. And then, in, and then number two, like how you should in, how you should engage with that idea of it being a cult, you know, is that like, how, how do you approach that? Sure. And, and it's a really, really difficult question. And I wanted to talk to people who are in the field of cults and are in the field of religious extremism to try to get their take. Like, am I just like overthinking it by sort of being ambivalent about it? And everybody I talked to was like, yeah, it's, it's mostly a cult, but then there are ways that it's really not. And I do think that term, like a lot of, a lot of terms in that world. It just doesn't, it's so overused and, and applied to so many different things. And it, it really, it doesn't mean a lot. And, and of course, when we say cult, we think Manson family, we think, um, you know, people in, in, you know, beige frocks who are brainwashed and have given up all their possessions and you know, worship the leader. It, it's a little more complicated than that. I think there are absolutely aspects of QAnon that you will find in any cult like me. 
the in-group versus out-group, the concept of love bombing, the idea that the outside world is this terrifying place and the people who are in the group you know, will protect you and keep you safe and really know what's going on and the people outside it are just dangerous and your enemy and hate you. That stuff is all basic cult. But at the same time, it doesn't have a, a, a charismatic leader. It doesn't have that person at the very top whose word is ironclad. You know, a lot of Q believers will be like, oh, yeah, we're the only cult that teaches you to think for yourself. And in, in some ways, that's kind of correct, because Q as, a, as an Internet poster is not particularly charismatic and really is always encouraging people, oh, don't, don't take my word. Think for yourself. Do your research. Cults don't do that. Cults are the opposite cults are like no only listen to me i'm the only one who knows what's going on and no matter how outlandish this sounds how bizarre this seems to you it's right because i said it's right and of course the indoctrination process is well anything that that person says is right no matter how bizarre it is so it, it's it's very cult-like in a lot of aspects but i think there are aspects of it that is not really a cult i mean if you want to call it a cult i don't think you're wrong but I don't know if you are exactly right either. Do you think there's any value in making that comparison at all? Or is it just kind of like an apples and oranges thing that people have just kind of latched onto because it's an easy insult? I think it's it's the thing that people have really latched onto. Um, and it's also, it's hard to argue about it because if you look at it, it really looks like a cult. I mean, it really, really seems like that. And, and, it, and it is in a lot of ways. So it's, it's one of those things where you're kind of arguing about a definition rather than really talking about the, the parts of QAnon that are really important, which is why, why, you know, why, why are people into this? What does this, what problem does this solve for its believers? I think, you know, arguing about whether it's a cult or not, whether it's a psyop or not, whether it's an alternate reality game or not. At that point, you're really just sort of arguing what the, you know, dictionary definition is. And a lot of people who come to QAnon through those particular worlds cult expertise, alternate reality games, military intelligence, whatever, they look at it through that lens. And I think Q is so complicated that it's not any one thing. And of course, that makes it much harder to define. And things that are hard to define are hard to talk about. Do you consider QAnon a cult or or have the potential to become a cult? If not, why? And what are the, what what is problematic about um, labeling it as a cult, if 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 that's the case, I think people have cultic relationships with ideas that you can have. You know, people who are uh, convert to Catholicism, and then within the Catholic Church, there are cults that are destructive and take over people's lives. Um, we we see what developed, you know, in in these last thirty years as people came out and said they were sexually abused within the church structure. Yet, you know, I have family members who are still adherents, believe in the church and um, feel that, you know, they're, they're against what, what's happened. Then they're encouraged that things are appearing to be cleaned up. So you have cultic thinking, you have cultic relationships with ideas, um, and that varies depending on the individuals and, and what they hope to gain from it. And then you have individuals who will take the cultic ideas, form them into a philosophy and a group, create a church, create a political system, a group, an ideology that people can join and actually hook up with. Uh, and they usually, you know, the leadership then becomes uh, benefited by that connection as, as you connect more folks. 
So it's it's a tricky word to use to describe um, uh, QAnon in that, you know, when we, like I said, there's a, usually a pyramid structure. There's a messianic figure at the top, somebody who we can point to began this ideology. Um, even though, uh, you know, HBO did the, the, a special on the source of Q and tried to look at who that might be in that, that guy in the Philippines. Um, I'm not clear on his name at this moment, but uh, Ron, yeah, the Watkins uh, son and, and uh, father, they may be the source of it. And, you know, it's not bothering them at all. They, they seem to revel in, in their own personal power in the situation. And they may feel that based on their fantasy of the tech world um, and how they understand it, that this message needs to get out. This becomes the methodology by which we can release it. Um, people are connected via the web. Um, let's take advantage of the web and we can sit back and, and have power and influence. And, you know, people don't even need to look at our personal lives and that we pick up pro prostitutes and that we're not necessarily living a moral, you know, upstanding lifestyle by the standards. Of, by the way, I'm not judging these people. I'm saying by the standards of many people who consider that to be problematic, who are followers of Q. So, yeah. So it, it's really, you know, when you violate the, the standards of the believer, you know, when, when it becomes real that the guru is having, you know, relations with followers against his proclamations that this is wrong. So when you see the hypocrisy rising up within that leadership, you can point to it. You can see it. You can have um, people from the inner circle of that teacher come out and say, hey, you guys, this is, this is not what's going on there. This is dangerous. Um, he's lying to you or she's lying to you. Um, and with Q, it's, yeah, we, we play games. We're, we're gamers, ultimately. You know, we're joking. Um, we're having fun with this. So they can go back to that, but yet the impact is, is real and it's having an effect on real families in our culture and individuals are getting swept up in that. Um, and the worry is how extreme are they, are they going to go? You know, is it going to lead to violence um, or uh, harm for both the individuals who abide by the theories and ideas of Q and the, the, the people who are close to them? So that's where, where it's cult-like, but you can't say that it's a cult in, in, in by definition, um, even though it, it becomes a shortcut for us to talk about the subject. That's why people like Pat Ryan and myself are, you know, people are coming to us with worries about family members. And, you know, I really feel that there's a lot that our experience working with cults can lend to those individuals uh, in, in learning strategies for dealing with their loved ones. Um, what, what are we likely to see in the future as this thing develops? You know, how can we uh, kind of limit its effect, its negative effect on the culture and on a family. Yeah, you know, I've I've thought about that a lot and I'm curious, um, you know, on the subject of, uh, you know, basically everything you were just talking about, you know, the question that I asked you whether or not QAnon is a cult and, you know, it seems like that's kind of like within within the field of expertise of <clears throat> of cults or 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 um, cult like thinking or cult deprogramming or counseling. It seems like the general consensus is like 
I'm hesitant to call this a cult. It's not technically by definition a cult. And um, and I and I see I see the I see the point there. And I, and I agree with it that, you know, just, you know, going out to these people and just saying, like, you're in a cult is not constructive. It's not going to help. It's no, it's it a never does. it's a tendency that a lot of people have whenever they're arguing with people on the Internet or whatever. And it's just not constructive whatsoever. But I'm curious, you know, cause, you know, with with the classic definition of a cult that it has a, you know, a charismatic leader. I'm, you know, the, the thing that I that always pops into my head is, you know, is is this maybe, you know, somebody figured out a way to circumvent that to have a cult where, you know, these people that wanted to spread these ideas and they wanted to gain this following around this, but they weren't this, they weren't a um, charismatic Jim Jones type yes. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they realize that if I, if I obfuscate or obscure that behind creating this online persona and remaining anonymous and building a character for myself, that I could essentially just provide the voice for this charismatic leader that exists entirely digitally online and is not necessarily one literal person, but it's me and a couple of my friends writing dialogue for this person. Um, right. and it, and it, it, it kind of makes me think of, you know, uh, a few elements from like Philip K. Dick novels where he dealt, he dealt with that a lot of like creating leaders that, that didn't exist. Like the president in the penultimate truth who would beam these messages down to the underground people and say like the, the war is still raging and there was no war. The president wasn't real. He was just a, he was a, computer generated thing it makes me kind of think of that and it makes me wonder like is there some wiggle room in there of like maybe this is a cult and i'm really just asking this this isn't this isn't loaded i'm asking your perspective on it but maybe this is a cult but they've just redefined what a cult leader is well i, I mean it's a it's a valid question a question that i think is is important to ask that are we looking at something new and if we are looking at something new, then we need to have new solutions for the problem. Um, if there is a creation of a group of people in some remote location um, who themselves aren't charismatic, yet they create a charismatic entity, um, because what, what charisma is for one person may not be for another. I mean, you know, you think of uh, a 70s rock star and um, uh, a, a 2000s rapper, you know, very different, you know, looking, feeling, uh, cultural icons, yet both are cultural icons that are embraced and absorbed and enjoyed by millions. So creating what is charisma uh, is something that can be generated. And I think, um, you know, knowing how to contend with that is something that's going to be uh, an important part of our future discussions on this issue that the social psychologists and others who study these issues are beginning to put out their opinions. And for the most part, what I see when people are discussing Q who are professionals in the field, it, it's pretty much the same. It's like sort of like, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's almost a, well, you know, and you need to take it individual by individual. And what for us, it always comes down to in working with individuals who've been affected by extremist ideologies is a relationship between an individual and an individual who they who they're concerned about.
So it's it's your your relationship that becomes essential. So it it is that that emotion, that emotional connection that you don't want to lose. And you raise that when you said it's never a good idea to walk up to somebody who you feel is affected or in a cult and say, hey, you're in a cult. You know that's going to shut them down. And in many cases, they've been prepared for how they're not like what the definition of cult is, you know, magnifying and focusing on those things that aren't like you and taking your attention away from those things that that define a cult. So it's an easy, you know, sleight of hand trick um, by diverting one's attention from, you know, what we aren't like and what we are. What we aren't like is there's no leader here. There's nobody telling you what to do. They're not make, telling you you have to eat gruel. They're, you know, they're not telling you not to love your wife. Um, they're not telling you to take all your savings and send them to a P.O. box. Um, at least as far as I know, there may be some individuals who are doing that. But I mean, these are all the we're not like a cult. But most cults don't do those extreme things either. They the, the kinds of control are much more nuanced, um, which is the majority of groups that eventually people get in trouble with, like like Nexium. I don't know if you've looked at all into the group Nexium. The the leader Keith Ranieri, you know, is serving 120 years in prison for sex trafficking and and um, his antics with that organization. Sixteen thousand people, including Branson, took his training. Um, they weren't in a cult, but yet he had a, a core group who were branded eventually, you know, to show their love and support for the source, the great leader. Um, so this is what we find when we're looking at, you know, both group, groups that splinter off of larger concepts and ideologies uh, and become cultic and the ideology itself, which people can dip into and dip out of um, and not be really radically affected by that. Um, and, and that in most cases is the majority. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that many of the people whose families have called me and are concerned are people who are, you know, they live a very comfortable life. Most of these people who are, you know, at least the ones we've come in contact with who, who seek us out for help. Um, the followers are, you know, they're living a cushy middle-class American existence, you know, they're, but they're, they're, yet they're, this has become their cause, you know, and they feel like uh, now that the kids are grown and, um, you know, or I'm an empty nester or, um, you know, I, I need to make a difference in the world before I go. Um, these are the people that are attracted to the philosophy, but they already, most of them, but not all, have a, a, a politically right leaning, at least in the beginning they did. But now we're seeing where the anti-vax movement um, left leftists and progressives and new agers who, you know, didn't trust government to begin with and followed certain channelers and spirit guides in the 70s, 80s and 90s. These ideas are coming to the fore in, in Q as well. You know, I, I think QAnon, you know, obviously it's been one of the first really mainstream um, examples of uh, conspiratorial thinking and cult-like thinking um, 
well, maybe not cult-like thinking, but definitely conspiratorial thinking. Like, I feel like this is the first time that a lot of people have been introduced to these sort of like conspiracy theory movements that was presented to them in a serious way that wasn't just like, oh, these crazy people who think that there was a second shooter for JFK, like that exists in a different mind space of like, there's some wackos out there that think this, but this was presented for the first time, I think in, in popular consciousness as like this real thing that's scary and, you know, things are happening because of that. So I think because of that, a lot of people really think that this is like a brave new world. This is like the world has changed this is an example of how we've gone downhill or whatever it is. So I guess my question, my first question in this sort of line of thinking is, you know, exactly how true is that in experience? Exactly how unique is QAnon or, or is it, um, you know, similar to, uh, is it similar to a lot of cults and conspiracy movements uh, that have come in the past that just might've, you know, we just don't know about because, the internet didn't exist or people just weren't paying attention? Well, I think there there were various movements that existed. I, I mean, there were so many various end, end, end times movement movements that existed uh, previous to QAnon. Um, and QAnon doesn't necessarily see itself as an end times movement. It, 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 it tries to be, uh, for some people, an activist movement, you know, where we need to take action. And I see that and some of the families who've called me where their loved ones have become active um, attacking school boards in their local communities, um, going after um, uh, black history um, and the connection between, you know, children feeling bad and the fact that um, the, the races are a lot better off than they would have been had had we, you know, not gone through, we did the Emancipation Proclamation, that should be enough, um, you know, that, that systemic racism doesn't exist. Um, and so they go before a school board and their, their you know, philosophy is, is uh, tied to the QAnon philosophy. So um, real time, how these mass movements, um, you know, make, make effect, it really does take, when we look at a cult, we look at a pyramid structure, a self-appointed leader at the top, and lots of information, different information given out at different levels of that pyramid. So you have many members who don't know what's going on up at the core, meaning you have a bunch of people adhering to the beliefs of Q without knowing maybe Q is a pedophile. I mean, maybe he's just trying to hide in plain sight. Uh, maybe he's doing a deflection. Uh, we don't know who he is, um, at least in cultic groups, as they've manifested in the past, we were able to define who leadership was. Even if the leader eventually dies and the group continues, you, you can usually nail down in time and place who this individual was. But the fact that, that it's a shadowy figure and that's acceptable to the kinds of people who are middle-class, upper-middle-class Americans who promote patriotic values is something a little bit different. Um, and, and when we look at cult groups, we often look at, you know, what, what is it, what's taking place that's caught, what, what changes are, are being elicited by the belief system? So if you're, you know, believing in angels and the new age, uh, people proclaim that they see the angels and, you know, they see them if they stare, uh, for example, at a friend. And if you stare at anything for a given period of time or a long period of time with your eyes open, you're going to see 
the light change around that person. You could call it a halo. Uh, you could have a, a great memory and imagine it to be the angel coming down and sitting with that person. I see your angel. Uh, therefore, you're blessed. Or this is what you need to encourage in your life. You need to eat more of this or be more of that way or chant this, this uh, phrase more often. Uh, but with QAnon, it's so disparate um, that in some ways it's more dangerous. And, and the things I feel that could be done, and this is just me as speaking as Joe Kelly, an individual who's, you know, speaking on their own, uh, is, is that there, the leadership that does exist that the people of Q look up to have not stepped up to discount the insanity. They have not stepped up and said, this is completely false. There's no proof of this. I am not the Messiah. And what they're proclaiming I'm going to be able to do, giving these false dates as to when I'll be taking over again or whatnot, you know, what these various... Um, Land landmarks or goalposts that have not been met when they when they when the prophecy fails, what do they do? What does leadership do? It ignores it because again, when when you go to a rally of certain groups, the Q people are there and they're there in force and they're there in order to promote more of the ideology that that leadership sees that is valuable for them. So I can get a group of people together. Uh, 20,000, 30,000 to promote my agenda. Who cares if they're a little wacky? At least they're following me and they're listening to me and they're voting for me. And therefore, that's my only concern. Um, it's, it's a very um, self-centered and, you know, ultimately, you know, fascistic point of view and uh, quite dangerous. And if, if, if it doesn't, you know, somehow the myth isn't dispelled. You know, most of these things do run a course for individuals. It doesn't mean they don't get new adherence, but over the course of time, 90% of the people that get involved with extremist ideologies leave them. But we're concerned for the 10% who stay connected and how extreme are they willing to get? How far are they, how much dehumanization is going to take place? You're a Democrat, therefore you're a pedophile and a baby eater. I have a right to kill you. Um, you know, how far will this go for certain individuals? And that that remains a concern, uh, how this thing plays out. We don't know. There's there's so much that we don't know. I do actually uh, consider them to be cults. Um, I think for all the reasons that I just mentioned about what to watch out for, but also that um, there is this great um defensiveness and i think also regression that happens that i see a lot when people get involved in cult-like groups uh where families will say i can't talk to um i can't talk to my loved one anymore they uh they're being highly insulting about me even asking a question about this group or doubting it they are digging their heels in even more they can't entertain even a calm discussion that somehow I'm attacking or I'm attacking the group or their supreme leader uh, or truth. And that is very cult-like. Um, 
where people will say, you know, I, I had a 30 year old relative who got in and now I feel like I'm talking to a 14 year old who's like, you know, you can't tell me what to do has that kind of tone to it. And I don't mean to be insulting, but it, it has that kind of um, like, how dare you even question me? Um, so in, in that way, it's cult like. And I think also because there is kind of a hangover similar to cult indoctrination that you see um, afterwards where uh, people will have a very hard time letting go of the high and letting go of mm, the whole community that's built around it and that these are your true friends. Uh, And also people leave still wondering um, about the things that were the fear induction kind of topics and wondering if those things are now going to come true, that if they failed the world in some way or failed the mission, that's also very cult-like, that you can't make a clean break. They kind of make sure of it emotionally that you can't make a clean break. Yeah, uh, you know, just to just to inject a little bit of my opinion into this for a second, uh, the thing that I've found interesting is you know, with a lot of with a lot of the discussion, and it's you know, it's stuff I've read, but it's also thing people that we've interviewed um, with some of the people who argue, you know, that uh, that QAnon is not a cult um, or couldn't necessarily be considered a cult. Um, I I feel like a lot of the times the argument that I've read or seen made is that it's it's almost kind of more of a, of a semantic argument that it um, couldn't be technically considered a cult because it doesn't fulfill all of the um, bullet points of what is, uh, you know, considered a cult, you know, on on official basis. So, you know, the the fact that it doesn't have a charismatic leader. And the thing that I've found interesting about that, the thing or the thing that to me sticks out to me is like kind of weird about that argument is that, you know, QAnon doesn't technically have a charismatic leader in the traditional sense that you think of when you think about a cult. But couldn't that just mean that these people who have, you know, engineered and orchestrated this have sort of figured out a way around that aspect of it? Because you're looking at, for me, looking at this, uh, you know, uh, at an attempted objectively, you have a bunch of these people who are not charismatic. They are not leadership types. They are these sort of like internet uh, message board, you know, possibly teenagers who want to have this sort of like, online power and sway over people, but they are not somebody who could go out and like start proselytizing to crowds. They don't have that charismatic manipulative power. And so in that, in, in the lack of that, they figured out a way to create a charismatic force that they could embody from, you know, behind a computer. So that's the, that's the thing that kind of sticks out to me about that argument of like QAnon isn't a cult because of this technical thing is, you know, that just to me sounds like somebody has figured out a way to evolve the definition of what a cult is. Right. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing when you go over the definition of a cult, because actually there are a lot of cults that will define what a cult is and what it isn't. And so uh, a lot of people I've talked to hundreds already at this point who talk about this particular thing where they will say they really trusted the organization or the person who was running it um, because one of the first things they did was define, pardon me. So one of the first things they did was define how they're not a cult. And of course (laughs) they found a way to define it in a different way so that you could say, oh yeah, this is different from that. 
Um, and usually groups like QAnon will say that a cult needs to have a leader uh, or that they need to have a place where everyone meets. Um, they will make sure to show where they can differentiate themselves from mm, the definition of a cult and say, see, this proves that we're not that. But, you know, a, a cult isn't necessarily about having a leader and it's not necessarily about having lots of people or a place where you meet or a, a compound. There are what we sometimes call one-on-one -on -one cults. You know, people will contact me and say, I think I was in a cult of two. You know, I, I had lost myself. And so oftentimes they're with people who are delusional or people who are malignant narcissists where they really lose their own sense of self and become kind of the emotional servant for somebody else uh, and lose track of reality um, and join someone else's reality who is very good at manipulating um, but with QAnon, you know, I mean, to not get so mired, I think, in the, the definition of if it's a cult or not, you know, because they'll argue the points about how we might define it. It is still interesting, I think, to, to talk about the leadership being different. And so if, if there is a leader, and there usually is, it's just that the leader didn't show themselves, you know, for a while. But that actually adds to the mystique um, because when you don't see the wizard, you can deify him or her or whoever it is and assume then they're something that they might not be because you need for them to be. And so it actually can make them much more powerful and, and have sort of much more um, mystical, kind of a mystical aura or grandiosity or perfection um, to them, wondering if they're somehow superhuman in some way because you've never seen them. And then when they give out their missives and their uh, coded, um, uh, undecipherable at times messages, which is actually very cult-like, a lot of cult leaders don't make sense. And, it, and it's actually quite crazy making. <laughs> and uh, people will be left with this sort of word salad and think, oh, it, you know, I, I have to decipher this. Um, and you'll also be told if you don't understand it, it's because you're not trying hard enough or you haven't come to enough meetings or enough services or donated enough money. Um, in, and you're not opening your heart and your mind to this, but it is really that it doesn't make sense. People only upon leaving a cult who look over the teachings will say, actually, I tortured myself and I let myself be tortured for years trying to decipher these things. And now that I look at it, it actually doesn't make sense. And maybe on purpose to drive people crazy. But, but because then you have this deification of, of this person who is Q, Whatever they send out, no matter if it makes sense or not, you put it together like it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, it, it has this utmost importance and you think it's somehow going to change the world. Yeah, there's that there's that video uh, that is has just been passed around on the Internet for a long time, long before the court trials or the arrests or whatever. But of the of the Nexium guy sitting down talking to Allison Mack and he's talking to her and he said he it's the video is like whatever four minutes long or whatever it is and for f like three minutes or so he just speaks literal gibberish mm -hmm. like he the things he's saying do not have meaning and then she starts crying 
Uh-huh. Like, and she, and like what he said, it literally is just gibberish. I, I find that so fascinating and deeply disturbing. Right. I remember one time, every once in a while, someone will alert me to a particular group. And if it's sort of in the area that I'm living in, I'll go to check it out. Um, and uh, if they ask for your name and address right away, I'll give them whatever name and address pops into my head. It's usually whatever movie I happen to see. Uh, and uh, because really they don't, they shouldn't have access to my information. And, and it's actually a good lesson for people moving forward that just because someone asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer it. So um, just good in life period. But um, I've sat there and um, seen the same thing where the leader will get up or a sub leader, someone who is a kind of a group head will get up and, and talk about things being like, well, we are, what was the latest one that I heard? Um, we are dancing in the listening for possibility. Okay. So everyone started clapping and I thought, wow, that's not English. And um, but it moved everyone in the room because of the way it was said and because they had been taught that if they didn't get it, they were going to be called on the carpet. Anyone who wasn't cheering and didn't seem excited was then kind of pointed to, looks like you're not getting it. Looks like you're not really here with us with this. And so people don't want to be the only one in the room to not get it. So this is a reassuring message for anyone who goes into situations like this, where you think you're the only one who is not getting it because you're not cheering. You're just the only one not faking it. Most of the people in the room have no idea what that person said either, but they have learned they've been there long enough to know they're going to be called on the carpet unless they pretend that they got it. So you're never the only one in the room who doesn't understand. Is there sort of like a a best practices list of early signs or red flags that you the organization that you're in might be a cult or that the uh, or or like an extremist conspiratorial movement or that um, a friend might be in a cult. Is there are there like a list of kind of like red flags or signs that you want to look out for? Yes. So um, there are a number of them. Uh, So I think that uh, it's good to watch out, first of all, to see if uh, it says that it is the truth, that there is no other truth. It is the only way. It is the right way. You have this with some Bible-based groups. You have this with some multi-level marketing groups that tell you this is the only way to be able to really make your riches um, and be able to pay your bills. But it's also true if you get involved in anything that says, um, thank goodness you found us because there isn't anything else that's going to help you in the same way or, or that has it's finger on the pulse of the answers to everything. And we are your only way. That's when you want to find the door. The other thing is that um, you can also get answers to everything that you've ever questioned. And it tells you it's the source of all of your answers. The dichotomy there though, is that they won't answer your questions about the group. And if you are having some doubts, like, well, prove to me that you actually have all the answers or that you've saved people's lives or that you've saved all these children, like in QAnon, um, they will find a way to not answer the question and to put it back on you that there's something wrong and negative about you in your doubting spirit and in your uh, inability to just have faith in them. So um, 
So while they have all the answers, they won't have the answers to your questions uh, about them. Also, a lot of times people will say in retrospect, they were made to sign things. They were made to sign non-disclosure agreements. They were made to sign other kinds of forms and pushed into it to really that took their rights away of being able to share what happened to them. You don't want to sign anything when you first get involved in anything and, and show it to an attorney. And if they say you don't have time for that, and if you delay then you'll be proving that that part of you that doubts these sorts of things really is the thing that's getting in your way. <laughs> then they're just trying to get you to put your signature on something you haven't perused first. Um, the other thing is that a lot of these groups are, are manufactured to create fervor. So if you find that you're suddenly feeling high, that you're suddenly feeling what they call love bombed, if you're suddenly feeling like these people now care about you more than anyone else and they see great things for you and it's been 10 minutes, then you also want to find the door because that, that's also a situation that's been created to make you not think and not engage your critical thinking because you're so um, instead in this period of or, or system of awe that has um, been uh, dramatized so that you don't think, so that you don't question. Um, I think it's also true that when you are involved in something or potentially getting involved in something that can't be trusted, they will not take no for an answer. They won't even take maybe for an answer. You have to believe it. You have to be willing to sign up. You have to be willing to make a commitment right away. Um, and you can't say, you know what, let me think about it, because then you'll either be rejected or you'll be insulted for doing that. Um, you also are not allowed to research it online from any other sources, which is true of cult groups, too. But people in cults know the least amount of information about them. Uh, and so they're the ones actually, in terms of, you know, QAnon will often tell me I have my blinders on, but... Usually they're the ones or people inside these systems are the ones who have blinders on and they're not allowed to even talk to people who have left to find out why they've left to get other uh, input from people who became uh, disenchanted and or, or harmed by it. Um, and then also fear mongering. Um, if you don't get involved now, something bad will happen to you. If you don't commit yourself to this, then if something bad happens to the world, you'll be responsible for it, or at least in part responsible for it. If you don't take advantage of this offer now, you'll, it'll never come up again. And none of those things are ever true. And so you want to be careful about that level of pressure. Um, it's, a, it's a hard sell and hard sales tactic, even if it's coming actually in spiritual form. Um, and also too much forced intimacy. Tell us about your life. Tell us about your marriage. Tell us about all the things that uh, have not gone right in your life and, or, or your biggest fears. There is, again, this created sense of closeness. These are people who really understand me. This happens with these large group awareness trainings, sort of EST-style trainings, where you have to immediately sit around and talk about what you want to have written on your tombstone, and you, like, you haven't like, taken your purse off yet. Uh, and... I think also there's secrecy that's encouraged where they will say, listen, you know, while you, you will be expected to tell us everything, you really shouldn't share this with other people on the outside because they won't understand and they'll try to take it away from you. And that's the way these groups continue and continue doing things that they shouldn't for a long time because they stay in the shadows and they get your participation 
in keeping them in the shadows. And um, they also have their own language, you know, suddenly a, a different kind of lingo that they speak that mm, might be English, but it sounds a little different. And the definitions are different. It's like Scientology has its own dictionary. It's English, but not, right? And, and this idea of he speaks my language or she speaks my language is a very unifying force. And it also disconnects you from the people outside who no longer, quote unquote, speak your language. Um, and then I guess one, one last thing. I mean, I could go on with a lot of things to watch out for that I've seen over these many years. But um, you want to see if there's a governing body. If something goes wrong, if you're put in harm's way or if you're made promises that mm, don't come true, mm, can you report this to anyone or are they this renegade group that operates on its own? There are a lot of people who have come to me and I know this might be controversial, but a lot of people come to me who have been in 12-step programs where something has really gone awry based on who was there at the time. It's not to say all 12-step is bad, but if something bad happens, there's nobody to go to to complain about it, to protect yourself. And so if this is an organization that is part of a larger organization that has like an ethics board or a human resources department, then you're a lot safer. But if it's just some person in their garage who started this or online or thought that they're the Messiah and they don't operate under the auspices of anything else, then you are completely at their mercy. And, you know, so now that we've discussed sort of the questions of the of the um, the what what is QAnon now, you know, the next available topic of discussion or the next the next logical step in our understanding of QAnon is how do we deal with it? What do we do about this thing? How you know, how do we interact with it? How do we stop it or solve it or solve it? Um, and are we, and is the thing that we're doing now moving us in a positive direction or is it just pushing us further into a negative direction that's just making the problem worse and worse? What do you think the best way to deal with QAnon is, you know, moving forward both, you know, on a, on a personal level with people that you might know, um, who believe in this, um, this movement and just in a general, you know, larger scale sense in terms you know in terms of society yeah i mean on a personal scale my 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 main advice to people who have a uh friend or a family member who is deep into conspiracy theories is to find a way to get them away from the computer because this is just something that is is that's just all consuming it's like an addiction and like you know like like they need and it often it fills a void and it helps them feel a sense of purpose in a way that they you know they they can't get elsewhere and so they need to find anything else you know going for a hike playing you know uh sellers of Catan, just just anything else in this world that they can find enjoyable and fulfilling because that's the that's the main draw of these sorts of conspiracy theories is that 
It makes you feel like you're a hero, like you're a digital soldier, like you're important, like you're part of the vanguard that's helping change the world, right? And the thing is, is that I can present I can present people with facts about why their beliefs are nonsense. I can't give them that feeling like like they're a hero, right? And this is why they they often uh, choose QAnon over facts. Um, you know, you know, on a more society wide scale. I have to say, man, I'm I'm pretty stumped. <laughs> I know it's kind of a kind of a, a unfulfilling answer, but we there's a we have an issue where we have, um, yeah, like literally millions of people who 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 believe this. I mean, I think it would like take it would take things that that are unthinkable. For example, it would take Donald Trump saying QAnon is nonsense and no one should believe it, and no one who supports Trump should also support QAnon. I think that would put a big dent in it. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, is that Trump will never do that because at the end of the day, he's uh, he would never denounce someone who passionately supports him. Yeah. You've just given me an interesting idea with your talk about how it makes them feel like heroes. We, we did an, an episode of our show recently about um, this thing that happened in the early 2000s where these two college students, um, they threw this like three year long prank slash augmented reality game on this like 19 year old kid where they concocted this fake world where he was like the the hero and savior of humanity that was going to like save us from a robot apocalypse that was going to happen in the future. And they did all these like scavenger hunts and games for him. And they kept like sending people to like give him clues. And it happened over three years. And then it eventually all culminated in them like leading him to this theater where they did this rock opera where he was the main character and this whole musical happened around him. So basically what we have to do is we have to throw one of those for every single QAnon supporter. We have to we have to do one of those for all of them. And we could we could eradicate this in like a couple decades. <laughs> that's, that's a, yes, it's, it's a yeah, ambitious project. We need an alternate reality game specifically tailored to every single uh, QAnon follower. It would take. Twenty billion dollars in two decades, but I think we could do it. Yeah, we. I mean, we. Yeah, we. Could, we just got. We got to get. We got to get a non-pedophile Jeffrey Epstein type to take interest in this and help fund us. So we just get, make sure he's not a pedophile because I feel like that would throw a wrench in in our narrative. That would, that if it would. was a, if he was a pedophile. Come on, Jeff Bezos, you squinty-eyed looking motherfucker. Let's do this. Let's do it, Jeffy. It's good to be conscious of the, we're going to need two approaches. Um, and and so at the personal level, I hear like several times a week from people who say, you know, I've lost my friend, my relative, whatever, to QAnon, and it's starting to affect. My my life in very negative ways like they won't get vaccinated whatever um and it's really hard i mean the a lot of you know i've talked to people who have gotten very frustrated with the you know so-called advice that's out there because often it sort of takes in you know it expects you to have like the skills of like a therapist uh you know a researcher all this kind of stuff and sort of this endless patience that you can just sit there and argue with this person all day um i do think i mean the the sort of the 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 best advice I've seen is to avoid confronting them about QAnon directly and to sort of maintain this relationship to try to take them out of QAnon if possible to rather to to do something anything that's not related to QAnon to go for a walk to you know and and now that the pandemic's en- ending hopefully 
Ideally, that's easier just to take them out to a restaurant to get them away from the Internet, essentially. Uh, and then but but typically, I mean, people leave QAnon because they have these own their own epiphanies, usually. And it's they see that something Q claimed kind of a tenet or a pr- with a Q proof that for them was very effective. They realize was wrong. And so typically it's kind of you maintaining the relationship until they reach that point. Now. If it's someone you're related to, you probably do care to put in that effort. If it's some random person, you know, often it's like, who cares? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the best advice personally. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, I've definitely like on an individual basis have engaged people in that way. But like, like you said, it would just, it's exhausting. It's like there's no time, there's not enough time in the world for people to devote their entire lives to trying to like de radicalize every individual person, you know, on a, person by person basis and also you know there's just all these questions of like these ethical questions of like putting the emotional labor onto a person to like educate people when they could be spending their time doing anything else that's more helpful to society in in a larger scale but uh but it also feels like you can't just like pipe out generic like QAnon is wrong like it's all bullshit because that just gets interpreted as like the mockingbird media like right what are they so scared of yeah that kind of stuff yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a hard it, yeah it's like I, I i don't there's just no there's no like right clear path i mean i, I don't think there is there's like a clear path for anything in in the broader perspective of of life or society but like this in particular just feels like what the fuck do you do? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is really complicated. And I think, um, you know, understandably people kind of want to just be like, what, how do I get out of this real quickly? Like what's the, the blue pill going to be that takes this person out of this? But, but as, as I think Julian feel that QAnon anonymous has said, and there are these hucksters out there in the same way that there are QAnon hucksters, there are these sort of anti QAnon hucksters. And so as he said, like if anyone tells you that there's like a silver bullet, that's going to get someone out of QAnon, typically that's not the case. And they're trying to sell you something. Well, that's the biggest thing that could be done against it. If Trump would go public and say, um, look, I, I, I don't like Hillary Clinton, but I don't think she kidnaps uh, babies and uh, tortures them and uh, kills them and, and drinks their blood. Okay. Or Trump could say, uh, I had my worries with John McCain, but I didn't execute him. Or he could say, no, I don't think Queen Elizabeth is part of the satanic cabal to kidnap children or the Pope or the Dalai Lama. So the QAnon world has bought into all these wild theories. It would even help if Trump would say, no, I didn't work with a Q figure high up in the U.S. military. So I, I hope one reason I'm more hopeful now than I was, say, six months ago is is there some signs that people connected to trump um don't really want to be associated with QAnon? so at one of the big trump uh rallies recently they told people not to not to uh, have q flags or or give signs that they're into q yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that a lot of people I've talked to have have basically echoed that, which I think really one of the things I really wanted to delve into is with this whole thing is like, you know, knowing that there's no silver bullet, there's no 
one solution, like what needs to happen to start to try to heal this. And whether that's something that we can do or whether it's something that needs to happen that maybe is impossible. But that that was kind of what I wanted to get to the heart of. And I've heard that sentiment echoed a lot is like one of the one of the big things that could happen that would immediately make things, you know, a lot better than they are now tomorrow is if these authority figures, whether it's Trump specifically or a lot of these other politicians just said just came out and said it was not real. And and instead of what they've done all this time, which is avoid talking about it because they don't want to alienate the the followers from being their voters. But then you have those people who tend to believe those kinds of things anyway. Um, And you have those people who have minor minor frustrations in their lives. That's why when you look at the QAnon believer, you have to look at the individual. And so many families, you know, call us and say, what do we do? And it really depends. I mean, there's no abracadabra. There's no magic series of words. There's no clear formula because it's an individual's relationship with an idea at a specific time in their life. Um, what what else is going on emotionally for that individual that led them to be able to be filled up by such irrational thinking? Many of these people are were doctors, lawyers, professionals, uh, business executives who you know are embracing Q ideas. So it's not about intellectual ability or acuity. It's about the suspension of belief and the need to fill some part of their emotional life up with this exciting new movement. And I can relate to that as an ex-member of a group that we were on the forefront of building a new society. Uh, it was referred to then as the Age of Enlightenment. And, you know, there were huge forums held and, you know, thousands of people coming together and, and uh, Nobel Prize winning physicists who were sitting on the stage with the Maharishi, which gave grave, uh, great credibility to the story. And so the, the more the movement can gain um, acceptable adherents who are saying, oh, we don't abide by the white supremacists element of this group. They're not us. We're, we're different than that. We're not part of the anti-Semitic group. We're these people here who are concerned about the welfare of our children and the lies being told by mainstream media. So finding that truth and building their argument by appearing to be mainstream within an extremist ideology has been effective at, at keeping and maintaining some sense of, of connection to these ideas, even though you're going to meet, like you said, you'll, you'll meet people who are dominionist Christians who believe that, you know, God has granted uh, Christians dominion, excuse me, over the earth. And therefore, they have a right to be in the position of power and influence that they're in. And, and God has granted them this. And, you know, it's like little little folks back there, the, the ignorant you know, don't cast pearls before swine. They don't need to know the detail. So we're just going to keep that from them. But we're going to forge ahead and use whatever means is necessary, whatever vehicle is helpful for us to further our political agenda and bring a more Christian America to the fore. So that's where the segue between 
Christianity and, and QAnon happens within that dominionist culture who, whether or not they believe in the, the detail of some of the ideas, they, they've, uh, they're, they're able to use it in order to gain adherence and talk more about Christian values um, and bring people more to what they consider to be the central theme of their lives and the life that's going to make America great again. And this whole discussion about how to deal with Q naturally leads into the idea of how we deal with and interact with the people. Um, it's easy to look at QAnon followers as this, it's easy to dehumanize them and look at them as this mass of slobbering, um, mindless drones that simultaneously are accusing you of being a sheep and not thinking for yourself while also engaging in this um, blind faith uh, um, acceptance of this blatantly incorrect narrative that's being fed to them by uh, a, a random anonymous person on a message board or through Facebook memes. Um, and as I kind of talked about with the, with the cult thing, um, it seems like our general approach to this has been mockery and alienation, telling Q people how dumb they are and cult, telling them that they're, that they're in a cult and that they are deranged or they're mentally ill, you know, before, you know, before the election, famously during his campaign, Joe Biden told QAnon followers that they needed to seek mental health treatment. Um, so, you know, let's really unpack that and talk to our guests about, you know, how do we talk to QAnon people? How do we interact with them? How do we deal with them? And is the thing that we're doing now, which seems to overwhelmingly be mockery, alienation, and kind of um, uh, giving them the cold shoulder, you know, we're going to, we're going to dismiss everything you say out of hand. We're just going to ignore you and your nonsense because it's all just gobbledygook. And we're going to tell you that you're in a cult and that you're crazy and you need to seek help. And then that's going to be the end of it. Um, is that the right thing to do? Or is there a much better path? I think that there's kind of like there seems to be like a, a binary uh, in, in, in the approach to, to engaging with QAnon followers or just the movement in general, which is like the idea of empathy versus ridicule, like whether or not whether you want to like make fun of these people for just being so, you know, quote unquote crazy or stupid versus, you know, empathizing with them or, you know, ignoring them. And just kind of being like, that's just some crazy people over there. We can just ignore that versus like engaging with the movement in some way. Um, and then uh, the third one, I think, is like getting into arguments with them where you're trying to just like prove the thing that they're saying wrong versus versus like trying to understand why they think it and have a, a dialogue about them. So, I, I mean, like I said, this is a loaded question, but like which. Which approaches have you sort of come to learn through your research are like the better way of, of engaging with this if you're going to do it? Well, and that's, I think, the, the last thing you said is a really important part of this, if you are going to engage with it. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that if you have a Q believer in your life, there's no need to engage with them about it. If, there are, if this is just some silly thing that they believe in and they're not hurting themselves, they're not making you feel unsafe, they're not costing themselves money, there's really no reason to pick this battle. It, it's not, it, not going to go anywhere good. 
and you're, you're really just wasting your time. But if that person is really starting to hurt themselves, cost themselves money, make you or other people in your circle feel unsafe, I would say that the, the approach of empathy and the approach of letting them know that you're out there and you're a safe harbor for them to talk to about this is much better than any kind of ridicule you know, that's only going to drive them deeper into the conspiracy because that's how we work. I mean, if we think something that's wrong and somebody tells us that we're an idiot, we're not going to go, oh, I guess I am an idiot. We're going to go, no, you're an idiot. I'm right and you're wrong and, and you're, all you're doing is making me feel like I'm more right. That's the way we all are. Uh, debunking or debating or fact-checking your way out of QAnon is, is just a fool's game that is never, ever going to work. And it really doesn't work with conspiracy theories in general, because there's always something else they can pull out. There's always some other, you know, there's always some other theory or some, some other piece of information that they, well, what about this? What about that? What about this guy who said this? And you, and you can knock those down, but at some point you're just tired of it. You don't want to do it anymore. And you stop and they declare victory and then you've accomplished nothing and again just wasted your time. But if it, this is if it's really important to try to get somebody out of QAnon, what you want to do is present yourself as a person who they can talk to about things that are not QAnon. You know, you you can make it clear you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about Trump. You don't want to talk about the election. You don't want to talk about vaccines. But you want to talk to them about hey, what's new in your life? How's your job? Did you see the game the other day? You know, just the, the, the anodyne small talk that functional people are able to have with other functional people that Q and conspiracy theory believers tend to not do because it's not part of this. It's not part of the conspiracy. It's all part of the, 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 the movie that the deep state wants you to watch. But if you make it clear that, hey, those, those little things are really important to you and you want to talk about that with them. What happens is you present yourself as a person who, if they start to falter in their belief in Q, if something in it stops making sense, if they find that contradiction, that that mistake, that thing that, that doesn't add up for them, they can talk to you about it because you will not ridicule them. You will not take it as, hey, I told you so. I was right. You were an idiot this whole time. Now, you may be thinking that. They, they may have been an idiot this whole time, but telling them that is not going to get you anywhere that you want to go. It's a very laborious process, and I, and I haven't seen it work that many times. There are very few publicly out Q believers. Now, there are a lot who, who post on you know, places like uh, QAnon casualties on Reddit, but they're doing it anonymously. Very few will talk to me on the record. They're embarrassed. They kind of can't believe what they got themselves into. But if you do want to start pulling somebody out, that's really the the only way that I know of so far to do it. Yeah, just the the pure Beach Boys method. Don't talk. Put your head on my shoulder. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Hey, I you know we should we should all be we should all be listening to pet sounds and and not uh, yeah for sure not, not talking about QAnon. <laughs> oh yeah, every everything would be solved. It really really would yeah i mean i certainly i think you know finding com common ground with people and understanding why they believe in QAnon, uh sort of on a more emotional level is going to be the more effective one uh obviously that's probably also the hardest one and uh you know and often for people i think it's um you know it, it's one thing for me to be talking to someone i've never met before who's into QAnon, and i'm like well you know okay i guess they're into QAnon. i think it's often very frustrating and another thing for people who who lost a spouse or a parent to QAnon and who remember what this person was like before they you know kind of went off the deep end and how you know hurtful that could be thinking about how suddenly this sort of farcically ridiculously facially ridiculous thing uh has suddenly somehow you know just kidnapped this person's brain yeah yeah uh i, f I feel like i've 
I've spent the better part of the last couple of years sort of going down the alternate route where I'm just like, if I can just fucking can like prove to this person that they're wrong, then they'll get it. And it, and it's, it's worked a couple of times. Like I, I have actually like convinced a couple people that not that QAnon was wrong, but that this one specific thing that they were saying was not true, but the, the hits to misses, it just doesn't feel like it, it, it works out in, in the end. It's a great question because uh, a lot of people, when they come to me to talk about a loved one who's involved in a group, they will say, it's sort of after the fact, they'll say, I think I blew it. I think I, I said the wrong thing because I seem to make them more angry or I seem to make them cut off from me or become more secretive and, and see me as the enemy. Um, the truth is that most people don't do it the wrong way. They do it sort of the natural way, but here this, these situations dictate a different way of intervening. And that's why it's good to get some guidance. You don't want to fall into a trap that's been set by the person who is running a particular movement. And um, conspiratorial thinkers will often be taught in this black and white way that anyone who doesn't see what you see is stupid. Anyone who is against you getting involved in this um, also doesn't really care about you, doesn't care about the world, doesn't care about your safety or their safety. Um, doesn't really love you. It gets taken to that degree. And so it's important then to not come out fighting and to not say, I know more than you do about this group and you need to stop it. Um, so if you can say instead, there is something that you've gotten involved in that I just might not understand. So give me a chance to understand it. Let's have some conversations where you teach me about what you're learning. And also in that, what you'll get is why it's important to them, what it gives them, uh, if it makes them feel special, if it makes them feel less lonely. You know, they, they'll reveal sometimes what was true for them emotionally that, that made this speak to them. And then you'll have a sense of really getting to know your loved one a little bit better, not knowing they were suffering with anxiety, not knowing they were suffering with, with loneliness. Um, <clears throat> or just for some people, they just really want to be taken seriously. A lot of people I've talked to said, you know, they were the ones sometimes who didn't go to the Ivy League school in their family and really wanted to be taken seriously. So then suddenly they had this piece of intelligence they thought they could share and now seem smarter than their siblings or smarter than someone else and only come to find that it was dismissed or they were being laughed at or um, criticized uh, and that then that made them um, kind of dig their heels in more and become louder um, just to prove something about themselves. Don't put people in a situation where they keep having to prove something about, their self, about themselves because you're going to then be forcing them to be taking an even harder line and they might even be feeling just because they need to prove that they're right. And so it isn't a competition. It's not about who's right or wrong. And instead to say, just, I want to understand. And I want you to be able to share with me what you're learning and what you're getting from this or what I, what you feel I need to know. I won't criticize it. I'll understand. Or I'll try to understand why that matters to you 
And maybe it's because you care, care about me that you want me to believe these things. And then once that person feels heard and respected and understood, they're going to be much more open to hearing you say, okay, thank you for sharing that. And I also have this other piece of information that talks about the group in a different way. Would you be open to looking at that? It's not that I know what's better or that this source is more trustworthy, but let's then do some comparison. And then that's the next step, really helping the person engage their critical thinking, which they will not do if they feel they're being attacked. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I, th I think, uh, that's been it's interesting because I see, you know, the the what you're talking about, the natural way of doing things, I think, you know, is, is, a, is a knee jerk reaction of anybody. Like if somebody is saying some super just insane things, your your natural reaction is to just be like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not true. Um, and it's really interesting that the seemingly natural reaction of people is almost a little bit counterintuitive to how to constructive ways of approaching these things. And, and I don't see people really in the greater conversation, whether it's on the Internet or just in general. I don't see people really, go, you know, going that path. I see I see a lot of destructive and sort of counterintuitive reaction to these things that isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, I will sometimes do and maybe I shouldn't say this out loud because then my clients who know I've done this too will hear it. But here I go. Um there, uh, there are a lot of times that I will think, how would I interact with a child who's having a tantrum? So what I will do, because a lot of the, the outbursts feel like tantrums, um, a child really wants to know that they are really upset that they couldn't get a second toy in the toy store. Really like it's an egregious, awful, <laughs> you know, like dehumanizing moment and the world is topsy-turvy. And so when they're crying and, or, you know, laying on the ground and banging their fists on the ground, that's not the time to say, okay, fine, I'll give you another toy. That's the time. That's the time to say to them, you know what, when you have a chance to kind of calm yourself down, take some deep breaths, I'll be able to hear you. I'll hear what you want. And you'll let me know you're ready to have the conversation. And I will sometimes, and that doesn't mean you're still going to get the toy, but you're really going to hear their feelings because otherwise you're like, oh, come on, you know, and you want to sort of pull them along the, the linoleum, right, and get them to the car. Um, and so I, I will say to people, you're yelling at me right now means you want to be taken seriously. The problem is I'm just hearing the yelling. I'm hearing the volume. And I'm seeing the look on your face and I'm not hearing your words. So if you can take some deep breaths and just share your thoughts, then I can hear you. It might be that I agree or that I don't agree, but more importantly, you'll feel like I'm really listening. Um, and so sometimes I just need to be able to find a way and I guide families to find a way to turn the volume down on the emotions, on literally the volume at times, just so there is some civility and right now, what's what's sorely lacking in our society is civility. And so it's a hard sell to to teach that at times. The way that people interact with politics nowadays, and I think that a lot of this, once again, goes back to social media and the way that social media just amplifies the most negative, 
emotional sentiments that can be said. You don't see something unless it's the biggest, most emotional, most emotionally charged version of something. Nuance doesn't work well in the algorithm. So you don't see those you don't see those nuanced or fair and balanced or more measured um, uh, analysis of things. You just see the people screaming. And I think that I think that because of that, we all are are guilty of that. We all are guilty of this of this thing where we just we villainize people. Our discourse boils down to just screaming at the other person that they're bad or evil or you know, whatever extreme buzzword there is. And that's just not how you appeal to somebody. That's not how you talk to somebody. That's not how you get on the same page with somebody. Um, and I, I've talked to, I've talked to people, um, you know, who are experts in like working with, you know, helping people get out of cults and cult deprogrammers and things like that. And, you know, they've said the same thing. It's, that's just not whenever you, whenever somebody's in a bad or toxic mindset the the worst thing you can do is just sit there and screaming scream at them that they're an idiot or that they're in a cult or whatever it is that's just not that's not how you handle it so i i yeah yes i would i would agree with what you're saying i i I think that i think that there we as a people in general and maybe this is more specifically the u.s um i know canada has some issues and there's issues all around the world but i i kind of maybe i'm in it so i'm more exposed to it but i feel like the us is like particularly bad at that at this but we've just we've gotten to a, a point where there's there's no healthy discourse about anything we just scream at each other and call each other names and then we always think that the other person is the one who is being the aggressor i agree with you i don't know if there's any um well i there's no easy fix because the views are so entrenched. The uh, hatred is so deep. Uh, there won't be, it's, it's going to take a while for things to calm down. Uh, I, I thought at first that maybe Biden's presidency would, would create more calm. Uh, but I, I don't think that's happened because uh, his opponents are just as strong as ever. I think also that he's made some big mistakes in making the other side uh, feel like losers, and uh, he's not been as uh, open to reconciliation as I had hoped. So the thing that's talked about a lot with this is this idea of when these people get really deep into Q, uh, you know, they start isolating themselves from their family. Their family doesn't want to talk to them anymore. They've, you know, they've, they've, they've ranted one too many times at a family function or whatever. And, you know, people, people are like getting, people are getting divorced because of it and all these things. Um, And, and there's this idea that is talked about a lot where it's like, these are consequences. Like you get into queue and the consequence that you see is that you are shunned by your family and that there's some sort of idea of like, these are the consequences. And these people, you know, over time will realize like, oh, I've, I've gone so deep into this that I'm completely miserable. I have my family doesn't want to talk to me anymore. And that that will one day kind of shake them out of it and be like, oh, like I I what am I doing? Like I've I've lost every person close to me because of this thing. Like, why am I doing that? So I guess, you know, with everything that you just said, um, you know, would you argue or I guess what is your argument or what is your thought on, you know, so you, what I'm kind of basically gathering from this is like 
in the long run, supporting your family and trying to, uh, you know, stay with them and work and help them through these things and provide a support system is a stronger path than this idea of like them being isolated and suffering the consequences of believing in these things and therefore sort of realizing that they've ruin their lives and that can kind of shake them out of it. Yeah. I mean, there are real life consequences. And if uh, someone has no money, no home um, and no access to the internet, and that's an extreme example, um, then maybe they will wake up and say, holy crap. Or maybe it will have pointed out that there is some, you know, mania mental illness there that has come to the fore. That's going to be a very small percentage. Yes, staying connected is is the most important thing. And the rants, um, if you can withstand some of them, hopefully you'll be able to get in some meaningful dialogue along the way. But the rants are going to be a part of it because that excitation, uh, the way our brains work when we get new information that people consider essential to your well-being. Um, have you heard the good news? You know, when people show up at your door with a Bible tract, uh, you know, Jesus is Lord, um, you, you know, and they're, they're, you can tell there's like something going on there. Well, that same impulse exists for certain individuals who are involved with Q ideology. It's that same uh, kind of a psychological and neurological response to the ideas. So knowing that that doesn't last forever is is a good thing and like i said you know in studies where they've researched people who were involved in cults we find that most of the people leave over time um and how people leave is can be a feature of how the parents and family or family accepts them you know i don't know you anymore but yet you know that underneath that overlay of this crazy these crazy ideas is really the person you love and trying to get at that. And that, that takes sometimes practice. It takes patience, it takes working with family therapists who are knowledgeable in this area. Um, um, and seeing if you can, if you can patch it up because if it isn't working for them, they will eventually go away from the idea. But in the beginning, in that honeymoon period, when the idea is so exciting, it's, it's a bad time to approach someone because this is exactly when the group counts on uh, having you gel with the ideas and the philosophies so that there, there may be behavioral changes. So what I'm kind of getting at is you have different periods in a person's involvement. You have the, the beginning phase when people are enthusiastic. You have the middle phase when you know they may or may not associate with the ideas. But if everybody around you has gone and said, screw you, you're you're left with these people and you're committed to them. Then You're more deeply committed because that's all you got. And and so that can lead to more extreme behaviors and less of an ability for you to affect change in their lives in order to help them. And finally, all that being said, we're going to definitely delve into this more in the last episode. But I I quickly want to just talk with the guests about how they feel media and social media have played into the growth of QAnon and the polarization between QAnon followers and QAnon skeptics and 
how the um, interplay of social media algorithms, the way that social media makes us interact with each other and has shifted and changed communication between people and how mainstream media organizations and news sites and internet publications have fed into that to deliver narratives in a polarized way and whether or not we feel like social media and media organizations have any culpability in the rise of QAnon and the growth of it. What role do you think that the media has played in normalizing or platforming QAnon? Um, to what degree do you think that that's happened? And I guess, what are your general thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say I, I kind of think less of a role than people think, um, mainly because I think the people who are getting, you know, kind of red pilled on QAnon are not generally like huge fans of I, I don't think they're like there's a huge like reading my articles to QAnon pop pipeline. Uh, the like, like when you talk to people about like, how did you get into QAnon? It's like, well, I saw this YouTube video, um, or I, uh, you know, I, I heard it mentioned on this already kind of conspiracy theory YouTube show I watch or something. It's very rarely like, well, I read an article in the New York Times about QAnon and I was like, oh, these guys have a lot to say, you know? Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's something to be conscious of. I, I, I think people certainly make mistakes sometimes. I mean, just, you know, around 2016, there was this whole debate over, uh, similarly how people covered white supremacists. And it was like, you know, Mother Jones famously had this one that was like the about Richard Spencer, like the dapper Nazi, you know, look at this charming man. Uh, whereas, you know, it, 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 and so I think in the past few years, I think there's been a lot of thinking on that. And I hopefully think it's improved. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's something I, I certainly always want to be conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that I'm I'm constantly torn on because we've talked a lot about the idea of like, you know, because we're, we're having we're having you on the show and, you know, we're, we've. We've set up uh, some other discussions with a few other people. Um, uh, we're getting, uh, we're doing an interview with Mike Rothschild, and we're trying to, we're trying to get some of the QAnon anonymous guys on the show, and some other people, uh, maybe not as QAnon specifically related. But we have talked about the idea of like, well, oh, if we're gonna, if we're gonna get these guys on the show, then maybe we should try to at least get a couple of pro QAnon people or at least reformed QAnon people just so it doesn't feel completely like uh biased like i don't i don't think it's biased but i think that would be the perception of it is if if somebody listened to an episode and it's all just people who think that QAnon is insane that it would just it would lessen its impact on a potential person that might hear our episode and Maybe they were like on the precipice of getting red pilled and then they listen to this, you know, multi episode deep dive and they're like, oh, actually, you know what? I was maybe almost there. Like, I don't think we're going to like reform like true believers, but maybe there, there's a handful of our audience that are like kind of almost there. And then we are able to help talk them back from a ledge and that it might lessen that impact if we just only had this very particularly biased perspective on here but also like i'm just so concerned about the idea of platforming anybody even remotely um involved in QAnon, and i also just don't really have any interest in like getting into a back and forth screaming match of like no you're wrong no you're wrong so I, I'm, I'm constantly torn about the idea of like whether or not we should be like engaging with them or because I, because it, I don't, it's, it's so, I feel like there's just no right answer or at least that my brain is capable of processing. Cause it's like, 
I feel like when we ignored them and treated them like crazy people, that was when they were able to fester and grow like almost like a, you know, like a cancer that was hidden below the skin. And then whenever we did focus on them, it gave them like validation. It's like, it's like, what do you do? It's like, there's, it's like a catch 22 in that regard. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are all good instincts. I mean, the uh, for me, particularly, you know, in the start of QAnon, it was kind of the focus on, like, what's the real world effect of this? Um, both because you don't want to be kind of promoting some Internet nonsense that doesn't matter, uh, but also, like, because it's boring just talking about, like, Internet drama. And so you want to see, like, what's really happening. And so it was at a point where, you know, QAnon believers were murdering people and stuff. And people would say, should we be covering this? And it's like, you have to have enough, I think, respect for your audience to think that they can handle knowing what's going on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I th there's there's a part of me that just feels like. That I don't want to like not provide all perspectives and I don't want to like censor people or deplatform people. But if I could just present the best, most airtight logic that it would be undeniable of like you've heard both perspectives, but we will clearly lay out that this is the right one. That's like what my brain wants to do. It's like obsessed with that. But I just the more and more I have inundated myself with this, the more and more I'm like, that's just not like the logic doesn't apply. Like it's not it's this is all this all lives in emotional truth rather than like like there's no scenario in which anybody would ever be like, oh, I guess I'm wrong because you've explained it to me. And now I realize like it's just that's just not really going to happen at a large scale. What were your thoughts on the general idea of this like mass deplatforming of bad actors? You know, we've we've seen we've seen Alex Jones be sort of like off, kicked off of social media entirely. We've seen, you know, Trump banned from Twitter um, and all these other, you know, instances, you know, QAnon just completely being deplatformed from platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, I think it, it has a demonstrable positive effect, in my opinion, like, like, like say what you want about Joe Biden and whether or not he has done anything good so far, or whether or not he was actually a good choice for the president and not just like a the better option between him and Trump. But regardless of that, there was like an immediate demonstrable like, oh, things like just feel better once Trump was like kicked off of Twitter. Like no matter what anybody says, like there was a there was an there was an effect. But, you know, what do you what do you think about the general? Because, you know, there there there's that. But then there's like, oh, but then what happens whenever something else gets deplatformed? That's like a fringe belief, but it's more legitimate and actually based on reality. Like like what are you what are your thoughts on the general idea of like these these tech companies deplatforming, uh, you know, people basically on their own whim based on like pushback from their users. Yeah, yeah, this is I think really an issue where there really is no there is no simplistic or easy act, uh sort of answer. Like I when I, when I sort of like I, I frequently use web forums and sort of like BBSs and like you know news groups in the 90s and like early 2000s. You know, there's this feeling of like, you know, the mods are gods in the sense that like, you know, if a 19-year-old moderator banned you because they broke up with their girlfriend that day, that was life. You just had to deal with it. Sometimes you get banned. Sometimes you get the bam hammer. Sometimes you get perma banned just, just, just cause there was the sort of the sense of like, it's all, it's all arbitrary and it's not a big deal. And that, that was always the sort of the sort of a sense I get like, like, listen, the mods are gods. This is their platform and uh, the rest of us ha have to live with it. And, uh, you know, I, it, 
the of course there is there is a difference now that because of network effects now because now because all of a sudden these platforms they've they've managed very cleverly to uh to wield enormous power about you know uh, about what what sort of ideas get get amplified um yeah they they, they there is there is a danger that that they will basically uh basically totally control the, the sort of the barriers of what is considered acceptable, popular, mainstream speech. Um, and uh, that's just a byproduct of the internet. And I don't know how you could probably, can possibly solve that problem, you know, without, without destroying the internet, which is like always a solution on the table. We'll see. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. The thing is that if you're coming at, if you're coming at it from pure, you know, consequentialist utilitarian kind of perspective is it, I think objectively good thing that QAnon was banned is a, it's a good thing that, that, that Trump was not able to continue promoting his, uh, his election lies and citing more violence on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. Um, but the thing is, is that, and, and that there are, I mean, there are consequences if you really want to be like a sort of a totally what you call free speech kind of platform. And we can see this recently with, uh, for example, the platform Getter, which was, uh, started by some, uh, Trump aides that's supposedly a free speech platform. And it was recently flooded with, um, with jihadist pro ISIS propaganda. So, so it's like, I don't think it's like, is there really, is there really any benefit to like, you know, that kind of obvious, obviously destructive, uh, uh, extremist propaganda getting a voice? I don't think so. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I really, I really don't, I really don't see how there's any, any sort of solution. Like, like the thing is, is that if you sort of, if you allow any, any sort of like, if you do zero moderation, now, first of all, this would be, this would be usual, unusual in the history of the internet. Like every single platform in the history of the internet has always been moderated to some extent. And if you, uh, don't moderate it at all, that turns into a cesspool like, um, like eight, like eight chan, which is so vile that even QAnon promoters do not recommend their followers to, to go and visit. But uh, but yeah, but on the other hand, if you if you sort of uh, you have to recognize that these these platforms are extremely powerful and that allows them to, you know, control sort of popular mainstream speech in a way that's unprecedented. I mean, I don't think I have any solutions. I think uh, I think the Internet was a mistake and we're fucked. Yeah. So the your your solution is we got to go. We got to do the escape from L.A. plan and we just got to like nuke it. We just got to like press the button exactly. and wipe out the grid. Exactly. We need to we need to find a way to uh, to have a controlling stake in Twitter and then just shut it down for the good of humanity. When I finished my book last December, um, you know, I knew more than most people about QAnon. But since then, I've spent a lot more time on the topic. And one way that my uh, knowledge has increased is doing more study on the way that uh, the media, no, the way that uh, big tech is used to influence us and shape us. Uh, so I'm now more open to the theory that uh, uh, various operatives in the Trump world uh, latched on to QAnon early on. And one of the, some of the main Trump uh, leaders behind the scenes uh, they took uh, Q material and amplified it and spread it. And uh, so you have this 
QAnon movement starting, you know, going on four years, and within two years, it has millions of people following it. So we're, we're seduced by the internet in ways that we hardly imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 a big topic of discussion in this in in this entire. Um, thing that we're doing. I mean, it's 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 definitely a, about QAnon and the movement and what's happened and how we should interpret it. But it's also very largely about how we got here. I mean, you talk about this in your book too. It's you know, this is not this is not new uh, territory. It's just something that I think is important for people to hear and understand. Is just the way that these platforms that we're on, these social media platforms and the algorithms that serve us content and the way that things are served to us and the way that they learn about us and, 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 you know, continue showing us things further and further into the fringes of these interests and beliefs that we get off on is it, 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 it's a big part of how these things take root, how they spread. And it's just an amplification of the human minds. Like, inherent tendency to want to buy into conspiracy theory and i and i don't mean conspiracy theory as in like there was a second shooter on the grassy knoll but just any 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 type of like putting patterns together and theorizing about the hidden truths behind things that we don't necessarily understand and social media is just like it's like a it's like one of those incubators that like that you put like cells into and it evolves them at like a rapid rate. It's just it's pushing forward all of these, all of these ways that our minds work and the and the belief structures that we form around conspiracy theory. It's just it's like amplifying them by like ten, twenty, hundred, a hundred times in in a way in a way that's very terrifying to me. Honestly, it's interesting that you say that there are no simple solutions and cults present a simple solution because I almost feel like. You know, there's there's sort of the QAnon stuff, um, which I obviously think is is very uh, concerning. It's it's tons of misinformation tied up with some things that are you know maybe generally true. Like you know, there's truth to the idea that there's corruption in government and Hollywood. Like obviously, there's like kernels of truth in these things, but overall, this is a destructive, harmful thing that is less about the truth of the things. It's more about these individual people's. Uh, you know, uh, trying to find answers for issues in their lives and then people taking advantage of that. I, I, I think that that's definitely true. But then there's also like almost like a counter uh, movement that has sprung up in response to that of like this, the, the, this movement of like violently anti-Q where there's this large community of people on the internet that devote their lives to like ridiculing these people and then there are almost like the counter influencers of that mar of that movement that are like these people who are just, you know, they're almost conspiracy theories of in their own right, where, they, you know, these people that talk about like, you know, Donald Trump is going to go to jail any day like they're, you know, they, they've like there's like this counter almost cult of um, liberals and and more left leaning people who are almost as obsessed with hating QAnon and QAnon people and ridiculing them and talking about how, you know, like laughing every time that their predictions don't come true, um, that, that are almost as obsessed with that as QAnon people are obsessed with Democrats being, you know, satanic pedophiles. Um, and I feel like maybe those, like that's almost maybe slightly less uh, 
malevolent than what QAnon is, maybe. Um, but I still find it interesting that, like, do, do you find that that happens? I think that that's part of what um, I've seen over the years in the anti-cult network, that there are rabid anti-cultists who leave groups and want nothing more than to destroy all references of the group. And in the process, they end up putting off the opportunity to help people that are, would be more likely to leave if it was about a conversation, if it was about respect, if it was about seeing them as human beings, just like you. They forget that they were once there. And maybe many of the people who have seen the harm of Q feel, you know, they're, they're raging. They're raging in the same way that those who are raging against, you know, the, the liberal policies of the Democrats and, and the fact that they encourage, you know, what they believe they encourage, socialism, you know, say, or communism. So, yeah, the boogeyman goes from being, you know, uh, us to them and then back to us again. We're the critic. And, and to become a troll in any setting um, is not a very pretty picture. I mean, you know, it's, it's not decent to, to uh, try to scream people out of their misunderstanding. It just is very rarely, very, very rarely effective. And if you want to be effective, then you really have to be respectful and understanding. You have to walk on their playing field in order to understand how to play their game. Um, and by that, I mean, understand the dynamic that led them there and really work on developing um, a better relationship with the person, trying to create more and more of an opportunity for Q to become less and less attractive. What we find is that with, with cults, that when you attack an individual who is a cult member, they will run headlong into the group and be loved by that group. Love bombing, they call it. And what we want to do is avoid that dynamic. We don't want to create the dynamic by which the only comfort they, the individual who's abiding by Q philosophy or ideas goes back to Q for comfort. Oh, yeah, my family did the same thing. Here's what I did. And th this is now their sounding board. So it becomes that echo chamber that, that led them to, to, to leave uh, mainstream society and look at these ideas as being viable and, and interesting. First interesting, and then something that was worth uh, exploring more deeply. And so, yeah, I, I don't really see the value in us becoming zealots on the other side. Zealotry always carries with it a certain danger of, of um, violent extremism and um, unwillingness to see from the other person's point of view. And that's really what we try to do when we, when we meet people who are affected by extreme ideologies. We, we try to really understand them, where they find themselves, how they, how they got there. What was it that led them there? And yeah, it's, it sounds all you know, very um, sunshine and lollipops, <laughs> but, and it, it ain't easy to get there. It's, it's a process and it, it, you have to have patience with, with, with the people you're concerned with. Um, 
and not call them names. You know, name calling doesn't lead to a lot of um, uh, compassionate responses. It just leads leads people to go more deeply into the people who appear to be those understanding figures, even if they are behind the screen and they've never met them face to face. Right. I mean, social media has been interesting because for some people, it's been a lifeline. It's it has helped them not feel alone. It's helped them feel connected, reconnect with people they haven't uh, seen in a very long time. It's uh, gotten them connected to what they think are important important things to know about and it could be what's happening in the world it could be trends whatever it is but it helps people do feel interconnected it's also true that it's brought forth a lot of aggression and people being very cruel because they can in a faceless way from behind the scenes um with um you know doing death threats to people who they just you know don't happen to like and there there have been some people who have become famous on Instagram or TikTok, who have sometimes had to stay home for periods of time because they're scared. And so it can unleash a, a lot of very bad behavior. But I think with things like movements, um, social media is so influential because it can wrap things up in such a um, appealing way um, that people get swayed by how many likes somebody has gotten or by watching a video where a person who says that they're highly spiritual, you know, are very kind of backlit. <laughs> so, right. If you have someone who says I am really spiritual, but their lighting is great. Then you also want to make sure not to trust that um, because you know that it's, you know, all pomp with no circumstance, um, but you can get very swayed by it. And so, I think that there are people who have gotten involved in, in cults in a much easier way because they never had to leave their house. They didn't have to drop out of school necessarily to go join whomever. They didn't need to go to meetings. They, um, they, there is a man, uh, Stephen Molyneux, who uh, was recruiting people, I think still is, telling them to leave their home, leave their family, not tell them where they're going and just take off. And these are people who have gotten involved in this group, never having met anyone else in the group. But these are these consistent friends who are on their computer, wherever they are. And there is this intimacy, like you're always there for me in the middle of the night, in the darkness of my room or in my basement or my car. And so I think it has given people um, the ability to be targeted over and over and over again. And so people have access to people on their computers all the time and they like also for especially during covid where people were feeling I think disconnected this was a connection there are people who've gotten uh, radicalized into a lot of things into extremist kind of thinking also um on the internet and got to a point where they'd be willing to sacrifice themselves um their lives for a cause for people who they've never met in person because the message was one of such caring and we want you to feel important and this cause is so important and and what was happening around them in the world was making them feel less than or in their their home wasn't such a uh, wasn't a place where they felt people really saw them and their potential um so people can get into your homes and into your minds on social media in a way that you just really need to be cautious about so I hope that before we get into the final stretch of the story, the that that has kind of 
really illuminated a lot of the sort of philosophical and sociological aspects of this and and helped you to realign your mindset going into the final stretch of the story to really you know I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that you need to empathize more with these people um, or sympathize more with these people I mean I definitely I mean just to give a little bit of insight into this um, my sort of evolution throughout the last several years um, you know just to give a point of just to give a benchmark um, last year we did an episode about Richard McCaslin the Phantom Patriot which who was this guy who um, he was a, a mega conspiracy theorist who believed in all of the deep state you know satanic cabal stuff he kind of existed long before he was doing this long before QAnon existed and um, he actually later in life um, before he died he was critical of, of QAnon and thought it was a deep state psyop um, but he generally had similar beliefs as QAnon, except for he thought that Donald Trump was also a part of the deep state. Um, but, you know, we did this episode about him and he dressed up as this superhero called the Phantom Patriot, as well as other superheroes. But particularly this one character called the Phantom Patriot, who was a, a superhero that fought to take down the deep state. And he was radicalized through conspiracy theory networks and watching Alex Jones and InfoWars documentaries back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And he ended up basically being inspired to go um, dressed as his character, fully armed to the Bohemian Grove, which is this upscale country club for rich celebrities and politicians in Northern California that you know, there's this conspiracy theory that there's a lot of like satanic rituals and child sacrifice that go on there. And he decided to dress up as his character and go storm the Bohemian Grove and basically rescue these children, these child slaves. And he went there and he did it and nothing was there. And he got caught and he went to prison and he ended up getting out of jail and kind of going on to further his his mission of trying to bring down the deep state by protesting across the country. And um, he was just this fully radicalized and indoctrinated conspiracy theorist who ended up taking his own life. And when we did that episode, uh, you, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not one of those people that, you know, relishes in my enemies getting hurt or dying or committing suicide. I'm not one of those people that's going to be out there posting like, you know, laughing about somebody dying from COVID when they refuse to get the vaccine. That's just, I, I just, and that's not my energy at all. Um, but I, at the time I was, you know, I, I think I, you can sort of chalk up my view on these things, on these conspiracy theory movements and these people who participate in them in that I was sort of angry at Richard McCaslin. I, I, I had a very adversarial attitude about him. And um, I did not sympathize with him at all. I just thought, you know, this guy, he's an adult. He obviously struggling with mental health issues. And, you know, there's no discounting that. But at a certain point, whenever you are struggling with mental health issues and you refuse to seek help for them, you know, at some point you have to be culpable for your own um, behaviors and, resp and responsible for your own actions. And that's kind of how I felt about it and how I've always kind of felt about it with these conspiracy theory movements and these like disinformation campaigns and this sort of post-truth, post-modern 
um, approach to reality that has sort of slowly crept into our society in the last several decades. Um, I'm somebody who very much values having an objective baseline of truth and reality and very um, obsessed with facts and data and coming at everything from a analytical quantitative standpoint. So obviously these types of people kind of give me a lot of anxiety. So that, that, that's kind of my, that, that, that's been my approach. That's how I felt about things at that time in around November. So basically about a year, exactly a year ago. Um, and I've been following QAnon for longer than that since back in 2017. And I've basically felt, felt that same way about QAnon. Um, but in the last several months, since the beginning of the year, since really getting into full deep dive um, researching on QAnon towards the end of the year last year and into the beginning of the year after January 6th and into the deep research in pre preparation for making these episodes, um, reading multiple books, including some of the books from the guests that we've had here, um, Mike Rothschild's book, um, The Storm is Upon Us, and James Beverly's book, The QAnon Deception, um, and just learning more about these people, diving deep into some of the conversations that have been had around them, the dynamics between Q and the influencer grifters and the followers and the boomer normies that found out about QAnon through you know, Facebook memes and the people who latched onto it during the 2020 pandemic because they were just scared of what was happening and just couldn't process it. Um, I, I ended up kind of developing myself a tremendous amount of empathy and sympathy for these people. And I kind of realized that, you know, the approach of just writing them off and saying these people are crazy and dumb and fuck them and uh, they can all go to hell and I'm just going to mock them on the Internet and post articles about dumb shit they've done and with cap pithy captions about like, oh, I, I can't believe these people still believe this and all this stuff. And, you know, the, the, the George Takei version of things where, you know, he says he's for peace and unity and that, uh, you know, he is on the side of of good and yet he'll just post a an article about some dumb thing that a QAnon person has done with some, you know, pithy caption being like, you know, I can't, be I, I can't believe I live on the same planet as this person. Oh my, or whatever. Um, and just realize kind of how that whole thing is just not helping. It's not making this better at all. It's, it's counterintuitive to everything that I've learned from talking to these experts, including somebody like Joe Kelly. I've talked to other experts as well in the, in preparation for this episode, everybody I know who is an expert and has decades of experience with working with people to get them out of cults or to deal with family members who are in cults, everything that they've, everything that I've talked to them about and read about is antithetical to the way that we on a mainstream scale deal with QAnon. It's like the exact opposite of what we should be doing. So I really just wanted to frame this whole idea and kind of make it its own episode. Originally, this was supposed to be interviews that were kind of like interwoven in the main episode. Like I was going to take these pieces and kind of put them into the main episodes. But I realized over time that it would kind of 
it it would it would obfuscate and kind of muddy the 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 point or the the message that I really wanted to get across at the end of the day with this whole series. So I decided that it would be better to have it as its own kind of thing. Um, and I I really just wanted to frame this whole series with this idea that, you know, yes, this is interesting. Yes, these stories are fascinating. Yes, the things that they believe are largely misinformation and blatant lies. And these grifter influencer people are the scum of the earth and I do not have any empathy for them. I don't have any empathy for Jordan Sather and Joe M and all these people. I'm not talking about them. You can mock them on the internet all you want. But the glut of these people, these these people that follow this are people who are just, they're, they're, they're just crushingly sad and lost and confused. And they have rightly become frustrated with the state of our society and our world and the, the massive economic disparity and the corruption in our in all facets of, of government and the way that the world is just obsessed with celebrity and the way that commodification and celebrity worship and um, efficiency of capitalistic infrastructure has taken precedence over like human lives. And they are they're they they've rightly become frustrated to their final breaking point on these things, and they've been so f- led astray by these people who have recognized that, and they have manipulated and taken advantage of it to get to amass clout and fame and power and influence. Um, it's just crushingly sad to me, and. Um, if, I, if you take anything away from this whole series, and like I said, yes, it's all entertaining. Yes, these things are misinformation and a lot of it is really bizarre. And yes, we've laughed at some of that stuff and we've made fun of some of this stuff. Um, hopefully we've more made fun of the grifters and the, you know, the, the Jerome Corsi's of it all more so than the sort of people who have been victimized and, and taken advantage of in these, in these situations. And yes, it is all, you know, in a sense, very entertaining and kind of mind boggling in a fascinating way. But if you take one thing away from this, I really hope it's that the way that we're approaching this is just not helping. When, when we share these articles about shit that they've done and we mock and talk about how crazy they are or whatever, uh, it, it's just it's not helping the situation. Whenever you get into an argument with somebody and you just start telling them they're in a cult and saying that they need to get mental help, like that, that's you're, all you're doing is pushing them further down a rabbit hole. And if, if I can impart one piece of advice, I would say to people, just, just stop, just stop talking to these people. Whenever you're on some Facebook post and somebody says some weird QAnon bullshit. I'm not talking about like saying racist shit or whatever or sexist shit. If somebody's saying racist shit or sexist shit, like, yeah, like fucking say whatever you want to them. Like talk shit to them, mock them, whatever. But when people are clearly just in the thick of the, in in the miasma of this conspiracy stranglehold that has gripped a large chunk of our country, just 
just stop. Just don't talk to them. Just ignore them. Just move on. Unless you really want, if you, if you are going to engage, um, you know, be prepared to have a real, actual, good faith attempt at discourse, not just like dunking on them and making fun of the things that they're saying and talking about how crazy it is. Um, you know, if you if if you really want to talk to these people and you really want to engage, be prepared to have a real, actual conversation where you are willing to hear them out and you are willing to express empathy towards whatever pain that they're experiencing that's causing them to say and think these things and be prepared to really systematically go through and try to help them understand how these things are not true, which is a big undertaking. It it's 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 not just going into a Facebook comment section and being like that's not true, lol, you're an idiot. Um it's really, and it's not even just really laying out the facts. Cause if you just link them to articles that have the facts, they're just going to say it's fake. They're not going to read it. It's really just like committing to explaining to them, meeting them in the, where they are and being like, okay, why do you believe this? That's why you believe this. Okay. So if you believe that, then just for instance, let me kind of talk you through this and see if this makes sense to you or see if this still works with what I explained to you. And here is the evidence. Here are the facts of this. And I'm not going to shove this in your face or say, told you so, or say like, ha, you're an idiot. I'm going to really just kind of in good faith, show you this information, show you these facts, show you multiple examples of the facts from different sources and kind of walk you through what, what they mean and try to try to try try to meet you in the middle and kind of appeal to the way that you're thinking about these things to help you to slowly understand that what you're saying is not true. Um, and it takes a tremendous amount of patience and it takes a tremendous amount of research and willingness to present and interpret information for somebody. And that's just not for everybody. Um, that's most people are just, not going to have the energy or really the equipping to do that. I'm just being honest. You're, most people just, you're, you're just not going to have the skill set to be able to do that correctly. And so, yeah, like I said, if I, if I could impart any advice, I would say, unless you're willing to do that, unless you're willing to commit to talking with somebody for, you know, hours, for an hour, a couple hours, and really patiently walking them through something and trying to meet them in the middle and help them to gain an understanding without the mockery and the 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 arrogance and the condescension, which are all things that are going to push them further down the rabbit hole rather than pull them out, but really work to like help them to understand something in a positive way that coaxes them out of the rabbit hole. Unless you're willing to do that, anything short of that is just destructive and toxic and it's not going to help and that and you should just stop you should just not, if, if you're not willing to go to that level you should disengage you should stop talking to the person you should just not comment anymore you should leave it alone nothing that you're going to say is going to help the situation and stop participating in this like roman coliseum-esque public mockery and shaming culture of these people where we all just pass around these silly articles of dumb things that they've done and kind of like talk down our noses at it. Um, I'm not trying to excuse these things or say that we should expend the emotion, the emotional energy to empathize with people who are spreading lies and bad negative shit. Um, I'm not really asking you to do anything. I'm asking you to sort of 
to sort of not do something, just just remove yourself from this weird we're all sitting in the Coliseum stands watching a gladiator like fight a lion thing that we've decided is okay to do. Um, I think that that's really the only thing that any one individual person has the power over to try to make this whole thing a little bit better. You can't change their minds really, unless you really want to commit to taking on the project of changing someone's mind. And even that is a, a gamble, a, a crapshoot of if it's going to happen. We can't change their minds. We can't just reach out and make our our politicians address this properly. We can't just make them denounce it. We we have really not a whole lot of power. The only real power we have over is ourselves and our own behavior and interaction with these things. And the only thing we can really do and have control over is just taking ourselves out of the equation and just not contributing any more toxicity and furthering of pushing these people down into their fiefdoms and further proving to them that they are alone and alienated and isolated and nobody understands them and the things that they believe are true because they're so controversial that they have to be true because why would people be so obsessed with making fun of these things and mocking them and talking about how wrong they were unless they were right and people were just trying to get them off the scent or they didn't want to accept the truth because it was too hard to accept um just just take yourself out of the equation for literally the good of humanity so let, let's wrap up and hear some plugs from our guests what, so is there any is there anything else you want to plug any, any yeah 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 so uh yeah i'm on twitter at uh, will summer s-o-m-m-e-r and uh we have a podcast at the daily beast that covers QAnon and lots of other kind of right-wing craziness called uh, fever dreams that i'm on so available wherever uh pod fine podcasts are uh sent out yeah yeah if you uh want to talk uh about QAnon more than you can possibly handle and sort of related conspiracy theories and we're we've also been covering a lot of uh new age nonsense recently because that's another important sort of factor in the evolution of QAnon it's uh it's not just uh far, it's not just traditionally far right nonsense anymore it's crystals it's yoga it's 5D ascension it's UFOs so we're we're talking a lot about the ways in which uh this sort of extremist ideology is creeping into those those realms as well. Yeah, check out Q Anon Anonymous, which is available on your favorite podcasting app. So if people want to hear more from people who have been involved in QAnon or cultic groups and what's helped them, and also to hear about um, how people can interact with those who are who, who are involved in something that's making them concerned, certainly you can contact me and you can listen to my podcast, Indoctrination. Um, you can um, find out um, a lot of information from something called the International Cultic Studies Association that has workshops all the time and lots of materials and lots of guidance for the loved ones, as well as for people who are former members of things and also people considering leaving. Cult News 101 is um, our news uh, resource. Um, and that really helps alert people to the nature of groups and undue influence in our in our culture and society. Um, we look at the broader picture. So there's a lot about QAnon on the on the website. Um, and from there, if if you wanted to reach me or my colleague Patrick Ryan, um, my my email address is uh, Joe Kelly411 at gmail.com.
So if, if you have any other questions uh, personally that you'd like to follow up with, I'd be happy to speak with you. So, uh, yeah, so you, you know, your, your book is, is The Storm is Upon Us. Uh, it's out. It's been out for a month or so. A little over, little over a month, yeah. Um, I, I definitely recommend it if you're interested in learning more about this stuff. Um, is there anything else that you want to plug or anything else you, you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, uh, RothschildMD. Uh, I'm not, I tell people this all the time. I am, MD is just my initials. I'm not a doctor. Uh, and I also, no relation to the Rothschild banking family. Uh, I, I get that a lot. And I'm, I'm just really excited about the response the book has gotten. You can get it anywhere. Uh, you know, if Amazon's your thing, that's fine. Uh, you know, any brick and mortar bookstore, bookshop.org for an independent store, you can get it directly from the publisher. So yeah, there are no shortage of, of ways to get the book. There's an ebook, there's an audio book. Uh, we got all your, all your Q bases covered. I'd like to tell listeners they can get my QAnon Deception book on Amazon. I would definitely recommend the QAnon Deception. Um, it's one of the it's one of the books that I read in in preparation for this entire series. And also, people that are real keeners, they can go to my website jamesbeverly.com, L-E-Y on the end of Beverly, and follow the links to my other books. Um, and if people prefer PDF versions of books. They can get PDFs uh, through my website. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.